Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Uh, we continue with our nine days format. Very interesting lectures uh, based on the uh, reaction of our audience this year. Everyone extremely happy with our choice. Uh, there's a recent lecture series, Europe and the Jews. By Rabbi Beryl Wine, uh, there's Europe and the Jews Part 1, which is five lectures, and Europe and the Jews Part 2, which is five lectures. We are in Europe and the Jews Part 2, the second lecture. It is uh, entitled Imperial Europe. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Thursday morning broadcast, you are listening to J.M. in the A.M. lecture concerns the uh, rise of imperialism in Europe and its effect upon the Jews. The uh, beginning of the story is naturally in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries when uh, the Spanish and Portuguese explorers left Europe and discovered uh, Africa Eventually, America, new uh, routes to Asia, the world shrank. And just as in our time, air travel has shrunk the world considerably. And uh, because of the fact that the explorers were, in the main, Christian, the Spanish and Portuguese were Roman Catholic, the English were Protestant mainly, but because of their religion... Uh, they uh, not only discovered, uh, but they also converted. Uh, They were bringing uh, good news to the unwashed, to those who didn't know better, and there was a sense of civilization, almost of noblesse oblige. The good people in the world had to somehow raise all the other people as well. And if they didn't want to be raised, then they killed them. But their motives, so to speak, were noble. The other main motive, aside from, uh, and that's why you find many of the explorers were missionaries. Many of those who discovered uh, the inner recesses of Africa and America as well uh, were missionaries, priests who came to uh, create uh, bastions of Christianity among the heathens. Uh, This always presented a problem to the Jews because the Jews are living, it's the same idea that happened in the Crusades. Why should we have to travel uh, all the way to the Middle East to uh, Christianize the Muslims? We got the Jews next door and they're not Christians. So what should we do with them? And that problem existed here as well because uh, the pressure for missionary activity was great. It was very well financed, not only by the church, but by private organizations as well, because after all, you're doing a favor. You're uh, creating uh, heaven for them. And here in the middle, you've got all these people who are not Christian and who are stubbornly not Christian. So what about them? So to a certain extent, 
the missionizing of the heathen exacerbated the Jewish problem in Europe. Because now the question arose, what do we do with the Jews? Now, another reason that uh, really drove the establishment of colonies and of discovery was all of the legends about wealth, gold. There were cities of gold. Uh, There was uh, magical places where uh, gold was in the streets. And so, therefore, we had to find those places, travel there, and get the gold. And uh, in our uh, time, uh, there still are gold miners, but uh, the idea of a gold rush that existed in these previous centuries is practically unknown in our world today. But then it was very, very big. It was something that people wanted to do. You can make your fortune overnight. For instance, the great uh, gold rush in San Francisco and California in the 1800s uh, brought about a sizable Jewish emigration to the west coast of the United States because there was gold. And the gold mines of South Africa and the diamond mines of South Africa attracted uh, tens of thousands of Lithuanian Jews to leave Lithuania and move to South Africa. Now, the Jews were not the miners in the main, but they were the suppliers. You know, if you wanted, you had to have food, you had to have equipment, you had to have mining uh, equipment, and the Jews were the ones that ran the stores and uh, were the suppliers in the gold rush. All gold rushes peter out. Some people make a fortune, some don't. It so happened in South Africa that there were Jews that made a fortune in the diamond business, uh, Bonato, Oppenheimer, etc., and they really set the diamond business uh, for centuries. They ruled it. Uh, but uh, it, it was an idea that somewhere there's a way overnight to become wealthy, which is something that people always are looking for. They're looking for the magic bullet. They're looking for the, the one thing that'll do it. And it's much easier than uh, working 50 years or just plodding along making a living. And therefore, uh, the impetus for immigration, for Jews starting to leave Europe, which began already in the 1700s, Uh, The Jews went to the West Indies with the Spanish explorers on uh, Christopher Columbus's uh, expedition. There were many Jews that were part of the expedition. That's where the rumor began that Columbus himself was of Jewish descent, which may very well be true. And... uh, since Europe was not very friendly to Jews, and since Jews were downtrodden and in the main poverty-stricken in Europe, if there was a place in the world where one could, so to speak, make it quickly, easily, and have a better life, that certainly was attractive to Jews. 
And from there we have the legend uh, that uh, our uh, ancestors taught us that the streets of America are paved with gold or that you just have to, you know, you can pick it up. So America remained a land of opportunity, but it wasn't paved with gold. But the idea of people leaving, and you're going to have millions of Jews leaving Europe, a very great wave of immigration uh, that was driven by the fact that they uh, believed that somewhere the streets were paved with gold. And somewhere they would be able to make it. And uh, without uh, understanding the impetus for immigration, uh, then you don't really understand the whole story of why Jews left. Uh, We're talking about two and a half million Jews leaving uh, the Russian Empire alone in the 19th century. And that was a substantial number of people relative to the entire Jewish population. It was almost 25% of the world's Jewish population picked itself up and left. Now, those that came to the land of Israel did not come for gold. And there never were any rumors that the streets of Jerusalem were paved with gold. And so that was uh, more or less an ideological and religious immigration. That's why people left. But all the other immigrations, South Africa, Australia, the United States, South America, the West Indies, the people left because of the fact that they felt that they would become wealthy. And if they didn't become wealthy, their children would become wealthy. And that that was something you couldn't dream of in uh, Eastern Europe. In Europe, generally, there were very few rich Jewish families. Uh, You know, you had the Rothschilds, etc., but uh, that was not representative of the mainstream of Jewish life. And that's why you have uh, Tevye singing, If I Were a Rich Man, because that was what was on their mind. And rich was always relative, right? The rich man in the shtetl could be poverty-stricken, but he was a little less poverty-stricken than his neighbors, so he was the rich man. But wealth in terms as we know it today, affluence, uh, that never existed before in the Jewish world. So uh, to a great extent today, our streets are uh, paved with gold. Now, the Spanish and Portuguese... When they came to a place, they said, well, now this belongs to Spain, or this belongs to Portugal. And that's why in Brazil, which is a country, an enormous country, with such a big population, speaks Portuguese. And South America speaks Spanish. And America used to speak English. (laughs) Because of the fact that... uh, That was the language of the explorers. And the explorers imposed their language and culture and their religion on the places that they came to. Now, this gave rise to the age of imperialism. Empire building, colonies. Uh, Europe had an idea, uh, aside from the religious angle, and the personal financial angle, they also had a national angle that colonies would create great wealth for the mother country. 
in most cases this did not work out the English were an exception the English were able to make the colonies pay and because they wanted to pay even more that's why you had the American Revolution the tea tax etc but they wanted the colonies not only to be self-supporting but to bring income into the mother country now in the 19th century after the Napoleonic Wars the competition between the great countries in Europe uh, lay in imperialism and in colonies so first of all uh, we, we, there are different uh, empires here so you had for instance the creation of the German Empire and Germany was uh, before Napoleon was a uh, hundred different little governing bodies dukes, barons, little places and now after uh, Prussia had uh, defeated uh, with, together with England had defeated Napoleon uh, Prussia became the dominant power in Germany and the Prussians eventually took over all of Germany and united it under Bismarck under the emperor, the kaiser and Germany became the largest country in Europe in terms of population in terms of the army in terms of the economy Germany was the engine now that caused its neighbors to be nervous and the two main neighbors to the west was France and to the east was Russia Poland didn't exist then. Poland was divided between Austria, Prussia, and Russia. And therefore, uh, there became a competition. Now, this national competition not only was for power in Europe, it was for power in the world. And so Germany wanted colonies. And Germany uh, claimed colonies in Central and East Africa which brought them into competition and confrontation with England. England was the supreme imperial power. There was a time uh, the sun never set on the Union Jack. England controlled uh, almost a a third of the world's surface and 25% of the world's population. Uh, and uh, the British imperialism the Israeli was its great champion uh, they were able to uh, take over India India is an enormous subcontinent today it has almost a billion people but then it was hundreds of millions of people and you had like 10,000 Englishmen running uh, six, seven hundred million uh, people who lived in India and India was a prophet all the companies are called the East India Company, the West India Company, and the fact that in the, in the Caribbean they called it the Indies because of the fact that India represented, and the fact that the Native Americans were called Indians, India represented the triumph of imperialism. It paid to be an empire. And the empire was supported not from Europe alone, because Europe did not have the resources to do so. But it was supported by the rest of the world. And England was the master at it, Australia, New Zealand. 
and it populated it originally uh, Australia was populated as a penal colony they took people out of the jail maybe that's why it was so successful uh, there's a legend I don't know if it's true or not but whenever I visited Australia they told me the legend that on one of the ships uh, nine Jews came on the ship they were prisoners they were taken out of uh, debtors prison whatever and so they sent the message back to England send us another Jew so we'll have a minion <laughs> and that's how the original synagogues in Australia began but uh, all over the world yeah, the English uh, flag flew and it was very profitable for England uh, Disraeli was the uh, architect of it but it was continued throughout uh, even uh, at the end of the second world war Winston Churchill said I did not become prime minister to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire but that's exactly what happened and uh, so you had competing empires so Germany uh, Cecil Rhodes who was the uh, British uh, explorer and governor in, in uh, Africa so he dreamt of uh, a swath of Africa north to south from Egypt all the way to South Africa under British domination so you had uh, South Africa and then you had Rhodesia and then it was southern Rhodesia and more than northern Rhodesia today it's Zambia and Zimbabwe and then you had Kenya and Sudan and finally you get to Egypt so England controlled the middle of Africa and Germany is in the middle there Germany controlled part of Uganda the French uh, controlled uh, other Mali and other countries uh, that exist today they still speak French there so you had all of these competing empires uh, rubbing up against each other and uh, because of this uh, you had constant friction constant danger of war but at least the war was not in Europe the war was going to be in Africa was going to be in America was going to be in South America was going to be in the West Indies it was not going to be in Europe now the Jews uh, reacted as I mentioned to all of these colonial developments and they uh, they saw it as an opportunity an opportunity to get out of Europe an opportunity to make a fortune an opportunity to have a better life now what happened was that uh, you had empires that did not have colonies the Habsburg Empire which was Austria Austria controlled Hungary the Austrians and the Hungarians didn't like each other uh, it's hard to like either of them <laughs> so uh, what happened was that uh, in order to keep the empire together they made what was called a dual monarchy the dual monarchy meant that the emperor of Austria was the king of Hungary as well and it was called the Austro-Hungarian Empire which was very unwieldy because Hungary had parliamentary rights it could veto certain things and on top of it Austria looked to have an empire in Europe 
they were, Austria is landlocked. They didn't have any ports on, so they wanted to have ports on the Adriatic. In order to have ports on the Adriatic, you had to control the Balkans. Now the Balkans is a, uh, uh, a swath of land uh, that is riven with blood for thousands of years. Different ethnic groupings that just don't like each other, never have liked each other, and often make war against each other. We had a Balkan war in the 1990s, and in fact NATO today still has a large force of troops in Bosnia and on the Serbian border in order to try and keep the peace. So Austria, uh, there was Croatia, there was Slovenia, there was Serbia, there was Montenegro, there was Bosnia, there was Kosovo. All of these are uh, different groups, many times different religions. Uh, uh, The Slavs basically were Russian or Greek Orthodox, while uh, the Croats were uh, Roman Catholics, Slovenians. And so you had this religious war. And Austria is trying to blend all of this into an empire which meant that they're always making war. Part of Austria's problem was that they controlled one-third of Poland. The Habsburgs after the Napoleonic Wars, uh, so Poland was divided. As I mentioned, so Prussia, Germany took the north-western part, and Russia took the eastern part. The southwestern part of Poland, uh, Galicia, was taken over by Austria. Now, Galicia had a, uh, an ethnic group called the Ruthenians, who are a type of Roman Catholics. Poland is very heavily Roman Catholic. It's the most uh, Roman Catholic country in Europe, far more than Italy. When you took over Galicia, you got a lot of Jews also. You got not only that, you got Hasidic Jews mainly, because Galicia in the 19th century had turned uh, 95% Hasidic. And there were great Hasidic rebbes there. And Austria didn't know what to do with them, because uh, uh, these are Jews that are readily identifiable. They don't look Austrian. Uh, they are not interested in being Austrian. So what do you do with them? On top of it, Austria controlled then Czechoslovakia, Bohemia, Slovakia. And there, there was a heavy Austrian-German influence. The Hassam Sofer, Moshe Sofer, who was the leading Rov in Slovakia and brought, was the Rov in Preshborg and Bratislava. But they, uh, he spoke German. He wrote in German. So uh, there was an element that, so to speak, was more amenable to Austrian uh, influence. On top of it, reform uh, had struck deep roots in Germany and in Austria. 
because that both Germany and Austria had edicts of tolerance in the 19th century. Their idea of solving the Jewish problem was to assimilate the Jewish population into the general population. So that within a period of time, uh, Jews would disappear. There would be uh, millions of people who had Jewish antecedents, but there wouldn't be a Jewish people. There wouldn't be a Jewish society anymore in Austria or in Germany. And the means of doing this was by these edicts of tolerance, which gave Jews rights. It made them almost full citizens. It opened up the universities to them. It gave them a chance to really enter the non-Jewish society in Austria and Germany. In Russia, that never happened. The Tsar never relaxed the uh, discrimination against Jews, which uh, turned Jews into uh, revolutionaries and the people who left the country as soon as they could. Now, this uh, imperialism within uh, Austria, within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, ran into a different problem because there's another empire next door, and that was Turkey. That was the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire, we have the vestiges of it here in Jerusalem. We still have the walls of Jerusalem that were built by Suleiman. The Jews here were under Muslim rule. Now, the Ottoman Empire was enormous. It controlled parts of the Balkans. It controlled Greece. That's why till today, Greece and Turkey still don't like each other. Look at Cyprus. That split between the two. Uh, And uh, the entire Middle East and all of North Africa were all under the Ottoman Empire. But the Ottoman Empire uh, was uh, corrupt to the core. And uh, the uh, Turks found it hard to control it and hard to rule it. And the Ottoman Empire became known as the sick man of Europe. And because it was deemed to be uh, less powerful, especially Austria, though other countries as well, uh, began to pick up pieces of the empire to take it away from the Turks and incorporate it for themselves. And this was especially true in the Balkans. So there became causes uh, that were celebrated causes in the world. For instance, in the, uh, and you should, uh, I think we should put this into our uh, perspective as well. The way there are causes in the world today that are fictional, uh, Palestinian state, etc. But everybody's for it. So in the 1890s, there was a cause of Greek independence that somehow the solution to the world's problems lay in getting Greece independent of Turkey. Uh, Lord Byron wrote poetry about it. There were many organizations in England that raised money and supported the idea of Greek independence. And eventually, through war, Greece became independent. 
which didn't do much to solve any of the world's problems and didn't do much to solve many of the problems of the Greeks themselves. But it was an example that you could bite off a piece of the Ottoman Empire and by so doing you would increase your empire. And therefore Austria, there were Balkan Wars in the early 1900s. There were two Balkan Wars. So there was Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, Montenegro. They all fought each other. Serbia and whatever one won in the first Balkan War, it lost in the second Balkan War. The reason that that's important because that's the precursor to World War One. And World War One is what changed the world until today. It's not World War Two alone. It's World War One. It's not for naught that it's called the Great War. And this affected the Jews. Not only the Jews who lived in the Balkans, but it affected Austrian Jewry. It affected the Jews who lived in Czechoslovakia. And it affected the Jewish outlook on the land of Israel. Because the Ottoman Empire controlled the land of Israel for... Well, the walls were built here in the 1500s. And from the time of the Crusades onwards, the Muslims controlled the country. So when you spoke about Jews going back to the land of Israel, you meant that the Jews were going to leave a Christian country, which had, so to speak, some understanding uh, that the Jews... Uh, come from the land of Israel not necessarily that they're entitled at least they come from it uh, to a Muslim society uh, where the Jews had no rights at all and uh, when the Ottoman Empire started to weaken because of the pressures of Austria and also of England and Russia wanted always to have an outlet from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. And they wanted the Dardanelles, the Straits of Bosporus. So Turkey and Russia have an old, old dispute about that, which today is a, uh, we see it, right? Today they shot down a plane, which just reignites all the old enmities. So the land of Israel somehow, because the Ottoman Empire became weak, Uh, Jews felt that somehow uh, we could uh, think about going back to the land of Israel because uh, the Ottoman Empire wasn't going to be able to stop us. Also, uh, in the 1800s, every major empire in Europe had a foothold in Jerusalem. So you have the Russian compound, German colony, the French, the Greek colony, all the neighborhoods, England, and these uh, consuls that were here, the consulates that were established by these empires, uh, their job was to undermine the Ottoman Empire. That was their main job. And therefore, uh, even though the Jews in Russia had almost no rights, but Russian Jews that lived here in Jerusalem in the land of Israel were nominally under the protection of the Russian consul. And the Russian consul had intervened on their behalf. 
so that it became uh, a uh, a boon to have uh, Russian identity if you lived in Jerusalem, but not if you lived in Vilna. So no, no, one of the strange things that occurred. I know my my Zayda was able to uh, leave. Uh, Israel and come to the United States uh, on a mission that he was sent uh, here by the uh, uh, by the Rabbonim here. So he was able to leave because he somehow had Russian documents and the, the Turks had to honor it and give him uh, permission to leave and to enter, etc., etc., simply because he was a Russian citizen. But if he would be in Russia, he had no rights at all. So this competition of empires uh, made for strange opportunities to arise. It also uh, colored the Zionist movement because of the fact that the Zionist movement, when it arose, never really took into account what we're going to do with the Muslims in the country. They viewed the country as being empty. And therefore... the Jews were going to develop it, and they were going to build here, and they were going to do, etc., etc. What about the other people? There are no other people. And uh, that has led to uh, uh, untold uh, uh, conflicts and errors and different policies, etc., because all of a sudden we realize that there is other people here. And just as the world once wondered, what do you do with the Jews? And now the Jews wonder, what do you do with the Arabs? What do you do with the Muslims? But because of the fact that everything was seen in imperial terms, and because Turkey was the weakest empire, the Ottoman Empire was seen as failing. So the Jews felt that they did not have to take it into account. They didn't have to do anything about it. And... uh, we, uh, we see, therefore, that uh, the Jews never really attempted to influence Turkey or the Ottoman Empire to allow Jewish immigration here. Uh, the Jews only put their pressure on England and Germany and the European powers because they felt that the European powers are the ones that had the ability to implement this kind of a change, whereas the Ottoman Empire, even if it wanted to, uh, did not have the strength or the influence to be able to accommodate it. So th- again, in the uh, war of ideas and empires, uh, the Jews uh, had to choose whom they would back, which side they would be on, which side would, so to speak, facilitate a better life for the Jews either through immigration or through nation-building, through all of the things that happened in the 20th century that we are uh, the heirs to, that uh, we know all about. Now, the English uh, had a fascination in their imperialist view, so they thought that the whole world should be English. And you see... uh, their, their influence remains. Uh, so uh, the English thought that somehow the Jews had a relationship to the land of Israel. Uh, the British uh, uh, viewpoint is uh, very strange. For instance, there were uh, the Scottish Church and the Anglican Church 
all somehow uh, toyed with the idea of uh, the Jews coming back to the land of Israel. The Israeli wrote a novel. The Israeli became a very wealthy man, uh, being an author, something which has escaped me. <laughs> he became a very wealthy, and he wrote uh, novels. One of his novels was called Tankred. And Tancred was the story of a great hero, a knight, a messianic figure who comes and redeems his people and brings them back to the Holy Land. It's a, uh, it's a strange, strange novel because of the fact that, in effect, he is predicting Zionism. He is predicting the fact that the Jews are, but he doesn't, his hero is not Herzl, and the people are not the Jews, and the Holy Land is not necessarily described as Palestine. But if you read the novel in the milieu of 19th century England, you know exactly what he's talking about. And he saw it because Israeli was the supreme imperialist. That's why Queen Victoria loved him. And he made her Empress of Victoria of, of India. They added one of the titles. And she was the queen for 75 years. So uh, in that atmosphere, uh, there built up an idea that somehow England can be instrumental. Now, it was going two different directions at the same time, naturally. Uh, when Herzl testified before the British Parliament, uh, attempting uh, to gain uh, their approval for the Zionist idea, and one of his great arguments was that if you will give us a national home in Palestine, uh, no more Jews will come to England and you'll be happy because then there was a uh, large wave of emigration from Eastern Europe to London, especially to the East End, and it, uh, all immigrants are resented, and the Jewish immigrants were certainly resented, and therefore his appeal to them was, I'll solve your problem if you'll solve my problem. Your problem is the Jews are coming to England, and so solve my problem, give us a place to go to. That was the reason, for instance, that Lord Palmerston, the British Foreign Secretary, uh, offered Herzl Uganda as a place where the Jews could go. Now, uh, interestingly enough, Herzl uh, bought into the idea. He said, okay, Uganda is fine. They paper-coated the idea that the Jews would somehow spend 50 or 100 years in Uganda and learn how to run a country, and then we could transfer them. Of course, nobody ever asked the Ugandans about it, because that was also part of the idea of imperialism, that the native population doesn't, doesn't have any say in anything. They are not, uh, they're, they're of a different race and a different culture, and they just don't get it, and they're not entitled to anything, and we're going to... Uh, we're going to pursue our uh, goals the way we want to do it without taking other people into consideration. Also, uh, the Germans controlled part of Uganda. Nobody asked them about it either. 
But the Ugandan proposal was brought before the Zionist Congress in 1904. And Herzl made it a point of personal privilege. Herzl said, if you reject this proposal of Uganda, I will resign. I will no longer head the Zionist movement. And here we have also very interesting bedfellows. So the Eastern European socialists, secularists, atheists, they all voted against Uganda. They said Eretz Israel or bust. We didn't wait 2,000 years to go back to Uganda. We want to go back to Jerusalem. We don't, you know, Weizmann, all of these Hebra, they were the ones they, 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 they were the ones that vehemently opposed Herzl. And he said, you want to resign, resign. The Mizrahi voted with Herzl. They voted because they felt a personal loyalty to him. Rabbi Fishman spent the rest of his life explaining the vote. And the Uganda proposal passed the Zionist movement. It passed at the Zionist Congress. But uh, immediately after that, uh, tragically, Herzl died at a very young age. He was 44. He was completely burned out by uh, his efforts. And uh, the Uganda never got off the ground as a practical matter. But that was an example of... So, aside from Uganda, you had other ideas like this. You had a Jew by the name of Baron Morris de Hirsch who was a German billionaire who helped build railroads all over Europe. And he had an idea, we're going to take the Jews, see everybody wants to take the Jews out of Russia, out of Eastern Europe, because uh, everybody agreed there's no future in Eastern Europe. They didn't know how right they were, but they all sensed that. So we're going to take them out. Where are we going to do with them? Where are we going to put them? They can't do anything. They can't read. They can't write. They are not, uh, you know, they're not really uh, good material. So what we're going to do is we're going to retrain them. So that already began in Russia, the Ort schools, which still exist here in Israel, uh, were meant to retrain Jews to make them somehow have some skills because uh, they said you couldn't build the... uh, And this is a continuing discussion that we have today. In the state, they said you can't build a state with the Talmud. Now, the Hirsch bought land all over the world, in Argentina, in Chile, in North Dakota, in Vineland, New Jersey, in Memphis, Tennessee, and all the places that he bought were meant to be Jewish colonies. So that's why the great synagogue in Memphis till today is called Baron Hirsch. And uh, until uh, till a few years ago, there was a thriving Jewish community in Vineland, New Jersey. There also was a thriving Jewish community in North Dakota. It no longer exists. But all over the world, he bought land and he paid for Eastern European Jews to settle there. But he couldn't pay for, you know, six, seven million people to go. And he couldn't buy enough land for that. And he met with a lot of resistance. 
because of the fact that he himself was not a religious Jew, even though the places that he bought all had a religious infrastructure. He built a synagogue, he built a mikveh, he built an Erev. They had all of that. But nevertheless, uh, it's very hard to get people to move. You know, I mean, the inertia is enormous. Especially if uh, you're used to it, right? You've been uh, for generations in this shtetl, in this town. So where are you going to move to North Dakota? Or where are you going to move to Netanya? And that's when Netanya wasn't Netanya, right? People didn't want to move. And overall, uh, the religious establishment, the rabbinate in Eastern Europe, always opposed immigration. Immigration to anywhere. Simply because of the fact that when you move, you change. And if you're moving to a... uh, community that is not established and well known as a Jewish center of faith and of knowledge, so then if you move there, you're taking a risk. And therefore, they were opposed to all Jewish immigration, even to the land of Israel, and certainly to the United States. Now, we look back in perfect hindsight, and we say, what if? What if the rabbis in the 1890s and the early 1900s said to all the Jews, you know, I'm the Rav of this shul in Vilna, well, let's all pick up and we'll go to New York. So we would not have been in Vilna when the communists came and when the Germans came. But that's perfect hindsight. And no one foresaw what was coming. You know, Bernard Lewis was a great uh, historian. In fact, he was the uh, expert historian on Islam. There's many, many books on it. So he was once interviewed, and uh, the interviewer asked him the natural question. Professor Lewis, what is your prediction about Islam? What's going to happen here? So he said, my friend, I'm a historian. Historians make predictions about the past. <laughs> so that's perfect hindsight. We, you know, we can make, uh, we can play the what if game. And naturally, uh, there's a lot of uh, guilt, let us say, associated with it. But who knew? We could only make predictions about the past, not about the future. So, uh, the Hirsch's uh, experiment really uh, fizzled in spite of all the money he put in and the effort, etc. And his competitor was Rothschild. And Rothschild put the money into the land of Israel and has been enormously successful, is remembered, whereas Hirsch is not really overly remembered. There was another baron in the, in the end of the 19th century is the age of the three barons in the Jewish world. So there was Baron Edmund de Rothschild and Morris de Hirsch, and there was Baron Ginsburg, who was a, a Russian nobleman, one of the few Jews that achieved uh, nobility in Russia under the Tsar. And his solution, everybody has to have a solution to the Jewish problem, otherwise why are you a baron? <laughs> what makes you better than Shmulek next door? 
So the answer is, he, I have the solution. I know what to do. So Rothschild said, we'll make colonies in the land of Israel. Again, that's imperialism. It's Jewish imperialism. Today, imperialism has a bad name. But there was a time that it was like uh, appeasement also today has a bad name. But there was a time when those policies were seen as positive things. Those were positive names. So Rothschild said, we're going to build in the land of Israel. The Hirsch said, we're going to build all over the world. Ginsburg said, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay in Russia because Russia is our motherland and uh, that's where the Jews are. I mean, why, do, why should we move millions of people? This is where they are. But we will develop a new Jew that will be acceptable to the Tsar. Uh, here we have the idea again of the new Jew. Nobody likes the old Jew. The old Jew is never was wasn't much worth. But we're going to create the new Jew, and that's what the socialists wanted to do. To a great extent, that's what Zionism wanted to do. Uh, that's what the assimilationists wanted to do. We're going to create the new Jew. The new Jew is uh, somebody that has. Uh, positive elements to him we can live with him so we're going to create the new Jew in Russia we're going to force all the Jews to speak Russian not Yiddish we're going to force all the Jews to have a good Russian education to know Tolstoy we're going to force the Jews to be patriotic and serve in the Russian army not try to avoid service in the army pay the taxes. In other words, we're going to make the Jews the model citizens of Russia. And then the Tsar will love us. Now that was a utopian scheme, to put it mildly. Because the new Jew wasn't going to be much different than the old Jew. And not only that, uh, uh, again, the uh, religious establishment would never agree to such a platform. And the Jews that were no longer under the religious establishment were being radicalized by the left. So they certainly were not interested in it. They were going to build the new Russia. Not the new Jew, the new Russia. Without the Tsar. So Ginsburg, uh, Ginsburg's plans uh, never materialized. If you go to uh, St. Petersburg, to Leningrad, what they call it today, Petersburg they call it, yeah. If you go there, there's the beautiful Jewish synagogue, the main choral synagogue. And if you go to the front row, there is a plaque there that's Baron Ginsburg's seat. I sat in it, but it didn't do much for me. <laughs> but uh, so there always are these pie-in-the-sky solutions to our problems. And when the imperialist, the imperialist world opened up, the world of colonies and you can go anywhere in the world and change cultures, etc. So that gave great impetus to the Jews. I think that without imperialism, the Zionist movement could never have gotten off the ground. Not only never got off the ground in terms of the non-Jewish world, it never would have got off the ground in terms of the Jewish world. But now that we were in such a world where uh, the Union Jack uh, was in Australia, 
So why couldn't the Jews be in Jerusalem? People are moving. Uh, there's colonization. And again, the world of imperialism made no allowance for the native populations. And uh, that was, uh, you know, that, that doesn't sound nice today with our current political correctness. But that was really the key to its success. Because had they made such an allowance, so then the United States would be, uh, everybody would be a Cherokee. So to a great extent, uh, Israel came a century too late. Because uh, a century earlier, the uh, solution here in the Middle East would be obvious. But it's no longer possible. But this age of imperialism really had a great and positive effect on Jewish aspirations and served as the engine that would drive us into the 20th century. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. Coming up, Rabbi Wine uh, continues the uh, series on the Jews of Europe. Jews and Europe part, or Europe and the Jews, I should say, Europe and the Jews part two. Uh, the third lecture in Europe and the Jews, Part 2, is Europe's Self-Destruction, Part 1. <laughs> so we, There's so many parts. Uh, so Europe and the Jews, Part 2, the third lecture of that five-part series is Europe's Self-Destruction, Part 1. And we're going to be doing that, um, doing that after our news from Israel here at JM in the AM. Thursday morning on this July 27th, the 4th of Av, it is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. I thank you for tuning in. A lot of people very, very pleased with our presentation of Rabbi Wine's lectures. It has been a real, real history lesson with lectures that were recorded uh, very recently over the last year or so. And um, I thank you for tuning in and being part of this listening experience. Lots to talk about with uh, Tisha B'Av coming up. Let's get to a couple of things here. First of all, Rabbi Wine will be speaking at Congregation Beth Abraham this coming Sunday. Destruction and Redemption is the name of the uh, is the name of the. Um, Amazing than the paid-off car. It may not be pretty, but the price is. Huh. So this looks like a commercial before Galitzal comes on. There seems to be some type of new link to Galitzal that is completely uh, unfamiliar to us. So I'm just trying to get used to it. Um, I'm going to let this commercial pass, and then see if we can get it on the air. Let's see. Hang on a second. Yeah. There we go. All right. So I guess the I guess the new system has a commercial attached to it. Um, anyway, he starts with um, destruction and redemption Sunday night, uh, the month of Av in our world. That's going to be at Beth Abraham, or by Barrel Wine Sunday night at Beth Abraham. That's in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Don't forget Tishabov Mincha, men and women invited. Tishabov Mincha, men and women invited. 2 p.m., Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, New York City, across from the U.N. At this time, make sure to be there in solidarity with Jews around the world. 
as BDS spreads, as anti-Semitic attacks continue, as terror attacks continue. Be there 2 p.m. this coming Tuesday with your Talos and Tefillin ready for Mincha across from the Isaiah Wall. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next at JMDM. Galei Tzal, Asha 2, Kadrani Yofnai, Ima Shikurei Akshav. בעולם הערבי מתקוטטים מייקח חסות על המהלך של ישראל להסרת אמצעי הבטיחות משערי הר הבית. כתבנו ג'קי חוגי. אז מי יצא הכי מלך בפרשת הר הבית? הארמון בריאד מפרסם הודעת שבח למאמצי מלך סעודיה סלמן ומייחס לו את הסרת המגבלות שהטיל הכיבוש. כך לפי ההודעה. דובר ממשלת ירדן לעומת זאת מייחס את ההישג לעבדאללה השני וטוען הוא עמד בנחישות מול שינוי הסטטוס קוו באל אקצא. אבל במזרח ירושלים אומרים הפרחים, לנו. ואחרי הסרת אמצעי הביטחון, מאות מוסלמים באו לתפילת הצהריים, פתחו בחגיגות, סמוך לשער השבטים. את הקולות אסף כתבנו אריאל זיגלר. בארבע וחצי אחרי הצהריים צפויה להיערך לראשונה מזה שבועיים תפילה בתוך מסגד אל-אקצא. בית המשפט העליון הכריע, ריקון מיכל האמוניה יידחה בחודש וחצי, כפי שביקשה חברת חיפה כימיקלים. כתבתנו דור מימון. השופטים אמנם אישרו את דחיית ריקון המיכל, שאמור היה להתרוקן עד סוף החודש, אולם ציינו כי מדובר בדחייה האחרונה. הם תקפו את התנהלות חיפה כימיקלים, וכתבו כי הסיבה בגללה מאשרים את הדחייה, היא אך ורק שלום הציבור. השופטים גם הביעו תקווה שהסיכון המרחף מעל תושבי חיפה ייעלם, ושהעובדים יועסקו במקומות אחרים. דוברו החדש של הנשיא טראמפ רומז כי הוא דורש לחקור את ראש סגל הבית הלבן בחשד להדלפה לעיתונות, כתבנו יותם לחובסקי. בציוץ בחשבון הטוויטר שלו כתב אנטוניס קרמוצ'י בעקבות ההדלפה של פרטי תיק ההשקעות שלי לעיתונות, דבר המהווה בעצמו עבירה פלילית, אני אפנה לסוכנות ה-FBI ומשרד המשפטים, כתב קרמוצ'י, ותייג את ראש הסגל רנס פריבוס. בשבוע שעבר מונה סקרמוצ'י לעמוד בראש צוות הדוברות בבית הלבן, מינוי בעקבותיו התפטר הדובר שון ספייסר, המקורב לפריבוס. בגבעתיים תינוקת בת שנה נחנקה במהלך ההאכלה בביתה. היא פונתה לבית החולים תל השומר במצב בינוני על ידי חובשי מד"א. שוב מקרה של התעללות בקשישים. עובדת זרה בת 50 נעצרה בחשד שתקפה את המטופלת שלה, אישה בת 89. כתבתנו פי גוטמן מוסרת שהתלונה התקבלה במשטרה על ידי נכדה של הקשישה בצירוף תיעוד ממצלמות אבטחה. ומזג האוויר לסיום, מחר ירידה במידות החום. אלה החדשות שעורך ישי שנרב. J.M. in the A.M. Thanks for tuning in and being part of this radio experience on a Thursday of our nine days format. It's the 4th of Av. Tisha B'Av is Tuesday. Monday night is Eicha night. And uh, we head to Israel on Tisha B'Av. On Wednesday, we will be doing our Thursday morning radio program from Yom NCSY with our friends from NCSY. On Thursday, we'll be doing our Friday morning J.M. in the A.M. broadcast. Erev Shabbos Nachamu from uh, Michlelet in, um, in Israel. And um, we are getting ready for an amazing and incredible journey to the Holy Land, that's for sure. Uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. This is his lecture on Europe's Self-Destruction, Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. As uh, long as Rabbi Shurin uh, 
mentioned uh, the revered Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. I just want to tell you one story. He was uh, probably the cleverest Jew that I ever met. There are learned Jews, many, thank God, not many clever ones. Uh, and uh, I was sitting at his uh, table, and we were discussing something, and a man came in. And he said uh, he's uh, been dating this woman for uh, a long period of time, and he doesn't know whether he should pull the trigger or not. Uh, and he said, you know, the Talmud says that they announce in heaven 40 days before uh, the infant is born that this person is going to marry that person. So he said, if that's the case, how does he know that that's what they announced in heaven? So Yaakov looked at him and he said, that's what they call love. And to me, that was the most practical answer that I ever heard to the question, right? That's what they call love. The uh, background to the there are going to be at least one more lecture, maybe two more on the subject. So uh, today's lecture is really a background lecture. How could it happen that in the midst of civilized Europe, in the most civilized country in Europe, in the 20th century, after Europe had adopted uh, democracy and tolerance and all of the Western values that uh, the Western world so treasures, how could it happen that... uh, the uh, genocide of a people, six million people, should be destroyed. And aside from the six million Jews, there also are three million Poles that were destroyed. Uh, there was close to 12 million Russians that died in the war. I mean, it's just an unbelievable number of people destroyed simply because of their ethnicity, uh, their religion, their beliefs, or the way they looked. So there's a background to that. The, the all questions that begin with why are difficult to answer. You know, there was a famous uh, exam in the Sorbonne in philosophy, and the final exam the professor put on the board, one question, why? And there were two correct answers. One was because, and the other is why not? <laughs> it's very difficult to come to an answer. But by knowing the background, at least, uh, we have some inkling of how this great tragedy occurred. Europe, at the beginning of the 20th century, is finishing almost a century of relative peace. Uh, From the Napoleonic Wars, which ended in 1815, uh, till the First World War in 1914, there were not any major wars. There always were minor wars. Uh, There was a war in Germany. Bismarck united Germany, and he uh, threw out the Austrians. Uh, There was the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, but that only lasted six weeks. There was the Crimean War of Russia, Turkey, England. But that also, relatively speaking, was a minor war. And what I mean by a minor war is that it was fought by professional armies and it did not involve great amounts of civilian casualties. There was no air power then, so there were no bombings. Uh, Artillery was developed. Uh, 
but uh, a war on the scale of the American Civil War did not yet occur in Europe. The American Civil War, 600,000 Americans were killed in the war. It was the greatest war America ever fought. And all of the modern techniques of warfare were perfected in the American Civil War, but Europe did not learn anything from it. They didn't learn that you can't charge a machine gun nest or that artillery uh, can destroy entire divisions of troops. And uh, therefore, uh, Europe looked relatively stable. Now, the largest empire in the world was the British Empire. Uh, It ruled uh, 25% of the world's surface and one-third of the world's population. And the British Empire, uh, the sun never set on the Union Jack. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, India... Ceylon, which today is Sri Lanka, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Africa from uh, South Africa at the bottom to Egypt in the north. It was enormous. And England, uh, Britain is a uh, small island, has a relatively small population. So you had, let's say, 50 million people Uh, that ruled over a billion people. And how did they do it? Through naval power. Britannia ruled the waves. The only way you could get from point A to point B was by ship. And the British Navy was unchallenged in its uh, greatness and in its dominion over the seas. The British Navy was built upon a ship called a battleship which uh, today uh, doesn't exist anymore. But the battleship was a large ship with very heavy armaments, and uh, it could blow any other ship out of the water from great distances. And so England uh, uh, rules the world, and England had a policy that it would not allow any one nation on the continent of Europe to be dominant. There always had to be a balance of power. And that balance of powers would allow England to finagle everything. Now, uh, history, you know, the world is made up of irrational people, many of whom you will meet. You may know some already. Because uh, irrational behavior is what history is all about. And irrational behavior is caused by people who, uh, I wouldn't say they're crazy, but uh, they have uh, psychological problems. They need a therapist. Sometimes people like that rise to power. And when that happens, uh, we're in for a rough ride. This is not a comment on the American election. Uh, We're talking about the beginning of the 20th century. Now, Russia where most of the Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, lived, lived under Russian domination. Because Russia then controlled most of Poland, the Baltic states, the Ukraine, and uh, there were uh, uh, six, seven million Jews in Russia. The Russians were terribly anti-Semitic. 
the Russian government, the people also, but the Russian government, the Russian church, and the uh, in the 19th century, uh, terrible persecutions of Jews occurred. And the Russian government said, uh, our program to solve the Jewish problem is one-third extermination, meaning the pogroms will take care of a third of the people, one-third assimilation, which they meant that one-third will convert to Christianity, and one-third emigration, and one-third will leave. Now, that last part came true. Two and a half million Jews from under Soviet, um, not Soviet, under Russian control, picked up and left. They went to uh, the United States and Canada, Mexico, Cuba, South America, and a handful went to Israel. In perfect hindsight, if 10 million would have left, it would be a different world, right? But uh, that's not how it works. The Tsar, in 1881, was assassinated, Alexander. He was succeeded by a uh, weak Tsar, who died shortly thereafter. And there rose to the throne a man by the name of Nicholas, Nicholas II. And he married a woman who was from the Habsburg Empire, who was German, really. And uh, they were all related because they're all grandchildren of Queen Victoria of England. King of Russia, King of Germany, King of England were all first cousins. There's no fight like a family fight. And she was really a mentally disturbed woman. She had, uh, she, she was uh, paranoid. You know, Nixon said, uh, You'd also be paranoid if the whole world was against you. Uh, She uh, believed in spiritualism, uh, all sorts of divine signs and miracles, etc. And uh, she completely controlled desire. And she was a bitter anti-Semite. She said all the troubles in Russia came from the Jids. Now, in 1905, Russia fought a war with Japan over Manchuria and parts of China. And the Russians were very xenophobic. So they said these yellow monkeys, boom, won't take anything, will destroy them. And the opposite occurred. The yellow monkeys won. They uh, defeated the Russian army, and they destroyed the entire Russian navy in one battle. Because the Japanese had perfected, as later in the Second World War, had perfected naval warfare. The Tsar had to blame somebody. How could it be that Russia lost a war to Japan? That a European power lost to Asians? And therefore... uh, uh, a series of pogroms were unleashed against the Jews. Uh, a pogrom uh, works as follows. Uh, the police announced that for the next three days they're not going to be in town. You can do whatever you want. So you can imagine, I need not, uh, you can imagine that, uh, you know, what would happen in any place in the world almost. 
and uh, a revolution broke out in Russia against the Tsar. Uh, it was led by the left, anarchists, socialists, communists, and uh, many of the leaders of the revolution were Jewish. Uh, this is a point that has to be uh, understood and remembered, is that uh, Bolshevism and communism, the left, in the early part of the 20th century was always identified with Jews because Jews were very prominent in those groups because Jews like, you know, we like to fix the world and we like to fix it in 10 minutes. That's uh, our nature. And anybody that offers to fix the world, I have a program that will, everybody's going to benefit from it. It'll eliminate war, eliminate poverty, eliminate disease, uh, give everybody education. It's, I have such a program. You're going you're to get a few million votes no matter what, no matter how big an idiot you are, because that's our nature. And the prophets of Israel gave us uh, those visions of social justice, of fairness and equality and tolerance everything that Judaism stands for. So therefore, uh, the Jews, uh, many, many Jews, not the majority, but many, many Jews bought into the ideas of the left. And when Jews buy into an idea, uh, they, uh, they're very committed to it. And even when the idea collapses, they, they still don't give up on it. So the revolution against the Tsar, uh, which again had many Jews involved, there were even uh, people who later became great Russia yeshiva who were involved in the revolution and who went uh, and sat in jail in the Tsar's prisons in Siberia. You won't find that in the uh, official uh, recording of our people. Uh, because of that, therefore, the Tsar had to relent, and he made a parliament, a Duma, which, uh, and, and there were elections, uh, was going to be a democracy, uh, the Tsar was going to curtail his dictatorial powers, but that was all baloney. And six months later, he dissolved the Duma, and he remained the dictator. So you had Russia. Now, Russia is too big to defeat. You can't swallow it. It has too many people. It has too large an expanse of land. Russia, China, these countries are not easily defeated. But the Tsar was very much frightened of Germany his cousin, because there we have another unstable person, Kaiser Wilhelm II. Now, the Kaiser had a withered arm, uh, so he always tried to compensate for his physical disability by uh, rudeness, aggressiveness, bra uh, braggadocia. He was a very difficult character. Uh, you know, if you go to Jaffa Gate, 
And you'll notice it's the only gate of the gates to the old city that there's no roof to it. There's nothing on top of it. All of them had an arch or something. And the reason for that was that when the Kaiser visited Jerusalem, uh, so he rode a very tall horse, and he was a tall man, and he wore the German spiked helmet with the feathers, with the whole thing. So he did not fit under the arch of the gate. He would have to bend down. And the Kaiser insisted that the Turks take off the arch rather than he bend down. So when you go by the Jaffa Gate, uh, there's a lot to uh, contemplate what hubris does to people. Now, the Kaiser said, why should England run the world? Why should my cousin have all of that territory? Uh, Germany's also entitled. We want to have colonies in Africa also, even though uh, the German colonies in Africa never were profitable. So he said, we're going to have parity with the British Navy. And he embarked from 1905 to 1914 on an arms race to build battleships. So the British responded by building a battleship that they called Dreadnought, which is Old English for Fear Not. But that became the name of a type of ship, Dreadnoughts, which were super battleships. And uh, England didn't realize that by building this battleship, they made obsolete all the other battleships that they had. And Germany also now built a dreadnought. France, which was always nervous from Germany, made an alliance with Russia. So you had Germany surrounded on both sides. You had Russia on the east, France on the west, England engaged in a naval uh, competition with Germany. And you have the Kaiser who is unstable and the Tsar who is unstable in the mix. Now we have to put a few more players in here. There's an empire called the Habsburg Empire, Austria-Hungary. It controlled um, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, parts of what uh, was once Yugoslavia, Croatia, Slovenia, Montenegro, Bosnia. Now the Balkans is a terrible place. It remains that way until today. There are a lot of different ethnicities and religions there, all of whom don't like each other. And they haven't liked each other for a thousand years. That's why NATO still has 25,000 troops in Bosnia today, because there was a war in the 1990s. And if they pull out those 25,000 troops, they'll go back to killing each other again. The other empire was the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, which controlled the entire Middle East, here in Palestine then, and part of the Balkans, so that the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire rubbed up against each other. Not only that, uh, there were a lot of groups in the Ottoman Empire that didn't want to be part of the Ottoman Empire. Greece, 
Greece was not an independent company, country, it was under the Ottomans. So in the early 1900s, the Greeks revolted and became an independent country. There would be two Balkan wars in 1912 and 1913, in which uh, everybody tried to take pieces of the Ottoman Empire, of Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Austria, Turkey, but these again were minor wars, and eventually the great powers, England, France, Germany, intervened and made a settlement. There was a place called Bosnia, which still exists today, and uh, Bosnia is divided between the Turks, the Muslims, and the Serbs, who are Slavic Christians. Serbia was a small, independent country. It's across the river, the Danube River, from Austria. Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, is on the river. And uh, the uh, Serbs uh, were determined to undermine the Austrian Empire. They dreamt of a greater Serbia, which happened after the Second World War when Tito took over Yugoslavia. So Yugoslavia was really Serbia controlling everybody else. The uh, emperor of the Habsburg Empire was a man named Franz Josef, Franz Joseph. He was uh, the emperor for uh, 60 years. He was a, uh, an anti-Semite, but he was a moderate anti-Semite in the fact that he did not he issued edicts of toleration. He did not... Uh, in other words, Jews in the Habsburg Empire were far better off than they were in the Russian Empire. And therefore, a lot of Jews moved. Uh, Austria also controlled a slice of Poland called Galicia. And the, there were a lot of Jews in Galicia, especially Hasidic Jews. So what happened was that these Hasidic Jews began to move to Vienna because it was all part of the same empire. Well, the Viennese did not appreciate these funny-looking, funny-smelling people coming to live in Vienna with fur hats on the Sabbath, and they don't speak German, they speak a jargon. So uh, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in Austria, and in fact, most of the Nazis, as we will see later, most of the Nazi leaders were Austrians and not Germans. Hitler himself, Eichmann, etc., they were all Austrians. So now you got all the ducks in the pond. The Emperor Franz Josef had no heir. His son had died in his lifetime, so the heir was a nephew the Archduke Ferdinand. And here's where Yaakov's story comes into play. He fell in love with a lady. We'll get back to that story coming up here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine has been lecturing this morning on the topic of Europe's self-destruction here at JM in the AM. We'll continue with it right after Rabbi Goldwasser. Uh, finishes his presentation of Morning Chizuk. A reminder of a wine will be this Sunday at Congregation Beth Abraham in Bergenfield, New Jersey. The topic is destruction and redemption. The month of Av 
in our world. Tuesday, don't forget, the Isaiah Wall is where you need to be for Mincha with your talis and tefillin. And, of course, men and women are invited to participate in the prayer service opposite the U.N., 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City. Uh, what else can I tell everybody here? On, um, oh, today, today is the bake sale. Today from 10 to 8, tomorrow from 10 to 1, the bake sale in support of the Lone Soldiers Center in memory of Shlomo Rindenau. Uh, it'll be at Breezy's, 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Today, the bake sale to support the Lone Soldiers Center. Make sure you're there for that. That starts at 10 a.m. Um, this coming Saturday night in Teaneck at Congregation B'nai Yishurin on West Englewood Avenue at 10 p.m. Hidden, the uh, the uh, incredibly uh, inspiring and important documentary, Hidden, will be shown in Teaneck, Congregation B'nai Yishurin, West Englewood Avenue, beginning at 10 p.m. Information, projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org, or 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS. In Cedarhurst, they're going to show it at the Young Israel of Lawrence, this coming Sunday at 8.15 p.m. In Cedarhurst, Young Israel of Lawrence, 8.15 p.m. this coming Sunday. That's hiddenprojectwitness.org. On Tisha B'Av, the Tisha B'Av program will be happening at the Ocean Parkway Jewish Center, 550 Ocean Parkway. Note the new location. Monday night, Rabbi Chaim Walken and Rabbi David Goldwasser after Mariv and Echa. On the Tuesday, after Shachris, Kinnis begins with Rabbi Ephraim Levine, Rabbi Tzvi Mordechai Feldheim, Rabbi Noah Orlowick, Rabbi Yosef Wiener, Rabbi Shai Tahan, Rabbi Daniel Gladstein, Rabbi Nussin Sherman, Rabbi Moshe Tuvia Leaf, Rabbi Fischl Schachter, plus two Minchas, and of course Mariv, all on Tuesday, the entire day happening. All the lectures will be live. Um, everyone's invited. There'll be separate seating. Everyone's invited. Ocean Parkway Jewish Center, 550 Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn. For information, 718-998-5822. Right here at the Nahum Siegel Network, Project Inspire presents the Tisha B'Av live streaming show. Uh, this year it's entitled The Missing Link, beginning at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, featuring Charlie Harari, featuring um, Zachary, Rabbi Zachary Wallace, you know, Mordechai Tversky, Rabbi Yisrael Jungreis. They are all participating. What is the missing link to bringing the Geula? Share your thoughts by emailing an audio recording or emailing radio at projectinspired.com, radio at projectinspired.com. Make sure to tune in toward the end of Tishabov for that inspiring conversation. Um... Trying to see what else I wanted to mention here. Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation has their Amuna for Life presentation. This Tisha B'Av with people like Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, Rav Yonach Biederman, Diane Dunner, Rav Ephraim Shapiro, Rav Eli Mansour, Rav Zachariah Wallerstein. Amuna for Life. It's the Isidore and Ruth Gibber Worldwide Tisha B'Av event. It's going to be shown to uh, in hundreds of cities around the world. Plenty of sites and locations. Go to powerofspeech.org for the location near you. Go to powerofspeech.org. Powerofspeech.org. Chavitzheim Heritage Foundation. Check it out in your own communities as you get ready for uh, Tisha B'Av. On Tisha B'Av itself, Chavitzheim Heritage Foundation with that very inspiring program, powerofspeech.org. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechenishmas Rav Zebin of Yosef Alevi, and Zechenishmas Esther Bas of Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. This specific period of the three weeks, 
seems to imply that throughout the rest of the year, we don't really need to contemplate the Golos and the Chorban, the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh. However, we know that every day we pray in our Tfilos, we say, May our eyes behold your return to Tzion. In Berchus Amazon, in the grace after meals, we say, May Hashem have compassion on Tzion. On Yom Tov we recall, Because of our sins, we've been exiled from the land. So we do have references throughout the days of the year, to the Chorban Beis Amikdash. Why do we need this special time to remember the Chorban? The Dubna Magid tells of a wealthy merchant who had a son who rebelled against him. The father was compelled to send him away. The son was a big Balgaiva. He was very arrogant and was sure that he was going to be able to manage on his own. He went out into the big world and tried all different types of work. Although the father was very angry at his son, he still loved him, and he would often inquire after his son. He heard that his son was wandering in the city, living from hand to mouth, and he hadn't met with any success. But the father hoped that his son had learned his lesson, and had been humbled by the experience, and would finally come back home. The father waited to welcome him with open arms. One day, a wealthy merchant who came from the city arrived to discuss business with his father. They discussed their business, and eventually the subject of the son came up. When do you intend to bring your son back home? The father was asked. The father answered, When he's going to ask me forgiveness, I will certainly welcome him back home. The merchant said to him, Let me be the agent for your son. I will apologize and express his remorse and beg you to take him back. The father said, No way. You can't be a messenger, not on behalf of my son, and not for me. The merchant said, Why not? You would accept the word of a messenger for other things. True, said the father, but I want to see that my son is truly remorseful for what he did. If he'll come to me and tell me that he wants to begin anew and he regrets the past, I will listen. But right now, you don't represent him. You come to me on a business matter, and you just happen to ask me about my son. Similarly, says the Dubna Magid, every day in our Tfilas, we ask for good health and for livelihood. Incidentally, we also recall the Golos and the Chorban. We remember to tack it onto our Tfilas at the beginning or at the end. However, that's not enough. Such a Tfila is not what's required. Our sages established the three weeks so that we can specifically focus on the Chorban and its effects. We concentrate fully on the meaning of our tefillahs for the Geula, for the redemption. Then our Father in Heaven will welcome and accept our tefillahs and return the Shechina to Tzion. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you Morning Chizik. Have a meaningful day. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. J.M. and the A.M. on this Thursday as we continue with Rabbi Barrel Wine. He uh, is ready to... Um, restart his discussion and lecture about Europe's self-destruction at JM in the AM. And there were a lot of Jews in Galicia, especially Hasidic Jews. So what happened was that these Hasidic Jews began to move to Vienna because it was all part of the same empire. Well, the Viennese did not appreciate 
these funny-looking, funny-smelling people coming to live in Vienna with fur hats on the Sabbath, and they don't speak German, they speak a jargon. So uh, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in Austria, and in fact, most of the Nazis, as we will see later, most of the Nazi leaders were Austrians and not Germans. Hitler himself, Eichmann, etc., they were all Austrians. So now you got all the ducks in the pond. The Emperor Franz Josef had no heir. His son had died in his lifetime. So the heir was a nephew, the Archduke Ferdinand. And here's where Abyako's story comes into play. He fell in love with a lady. Most of the aristocratic marriages were arranged marriages. The one that you loved became your mistress. The one you were married to was your wife. That's the way it worked. But he fell in love with a woman by the name of Sophie, and she was a commoner. She was not from royal lineage. And he insisted on marrying her. He fell in love with her. He insisted on marrying her. It's the same thing that happened with the Prince of Wales, Edward VIII, in the 1930s, which we'll also get to, I hope. It just shows how strange history is, right? Yeah, history is great events, right? There's the who wants to marry Sophie, and because of that, uh, the emperor said, "Well, my nephew can become the next emperor, but she will never be a queen. She has no rights." Which made for great tension, as you can imagine, in the family and in the whole empire. Now, uh, Ferdinand and Sophie took a trip to Sarajevo in 1914, in June 1914. Sarajevo is uh, in the Balkans, it's in Bosnia, and there were uh, a group of assassins, Serbian, who went there, with the express purpose of assassinating Ferdinand and Sophie. And again, by all sorts of ineptitude, they turned out to be successful. So the Archduke was killed, and the Austrian emperor and the Austrian government said, Serbia did it, because the ones that did it, Gabriel Princip, he was a Serb. And the Serbian government put you know, backed it. If you go to uh, Theresienstadt, Terezin, in Czechoslovakia today, outside of Prague, so there is a prison there. It was a concentration camp in the Second World War. It was a, but it previously it was an Austrian prison. And outside the cell where Gabriel Princip was held until his execution, Every day, somebody puts a new bouquet of flowers. It's uh, more than 100 years later. So it gives you an idea of uh, Balkan memory. It doesn't just go away. So uh, the uh, Austrian government presents Serbia with an ultimatum. And under the terms of the ultimatum, Serbia has to, to punish the perpetrators, but it, it, it's an ultimatum that would not 
allow Serbia its natural sovereignty over its own affairs. The Serbs are Slavs, from the Slavic race. Russia always feels that it is the protector of the Slavs, because Russia is the largest Slavic entity in Europe. And therefore, uh, Russia uh, says, uh, don't bother the Serbs, because if you bother the Serbs, we will have to intervene. Russia, remember, had an alliance with France. And under the terms of the alliance, if Russia goes to war, France has to go to war. Germany is alarmed. But the Germans had a plan. The Kaiser had a plan. Uh, The Kaiser's plan was that he would conquer France in six weeks the way they had done it in 1870. It was named after a general, uh, the head of the German general staff, von Schlieffen was his name. And uh, after they conquered France, after they defeated France, they would turn east and defeat Russia, which is the same thing that happened in the Second World War. And uh, the Kaiser therefore told the Austrians, he gave them what was called a blank check. He said, if you go to war against Serbia, we'll back you. We will protect you from Russia. Now, part of the plan of the invasion of France was to go through Belgium. Now, Belgium was an artificial country created in 1815 after the Napoleonic Wars. It was meant to be a buffer between Germany and France, between Holland and France. It's divided today between Dutch-speaking and French-speaking people. There always are problems regarding that. And uh, because of this, uh, England had guaranteed the borders of Belgium. So if Germany invades France through Belgium, England is going to have to go into war. And that is the story of how World War I begins. World War I will be the beginning of the Holocaust for the Jewish people. If we would not have uh, Yom HaShoah for the Second World War, we would have to have a Yom HaShoah for the First World War. Because uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews are going to be killed. Uh, The whole Eastern Front between Germany and Russia and Austria will be fought in the areas where the heaviest Jewish population was. It will... uh, upset all of the infrastructure of Jewish life that had been built up over hundreds of years in Eastern Europe. And there were Jews in every army. In other words, Jews were fighting each other. There were 12,500 Jews who died in the German army fighting for Germany. There were Jews in the French army, including Colonel Dreyfus, Captain Dreyfus. Uh, There were Jews in the Russian army. Now, uh, peculiarly enough, the German army was the kindest army to the Jews. The Russian army was the most vicious against the Jews. The Russian army perpetrated countless pogroms. 
but the German army, uh, in fact, uh, there were Orthodox Jewish chaplains in the German army, and when they came to a community and the Germans conquered it, so the Orthodox Jewish chaplains were enabled uh, to build, uh, rebuild the mikveh, to put up the Eruv, to uh, provide all the religious infrastructure necessary. Those same German officers would come 20 years later and shoot every Jew in the street. Uh, but it will help explain why the Jews didn't figure out what was going to happen to them because of the fact that uh, in their living memory they remember the German army this war was supposed to be over in six weeks well you know it's easy to start a war it's very hard to end it to get out of it the war lasted over four years it consumed over 20 million people an entire generation in England and France and Germany was lost the Russian army finally revolted against the Tsar. They didn't want to fight any longer. And there came a second revolution in 1917. It was called the February Revolution. And that revolution installed a democratic government under the leadership of a man by the name of Kerensky. And Jews were very prominent in it. But... In October 1917 was the third revolution, the October Revolution. And this was headed by Lenin and his Jewish assistant, Leon Trotsky, whose real name was Bronstein. Trotsky has a descendant who lives here in the old city. He's a Jew with the beard and payas and wears his sitsis outside. It's an interesting story. He was interviewed, and they said, uh, they asked him, uh, what would your grandfather say if he saw you now? And he said he would understand. He said he was a believer. We were all believers. He said, we just believe in the wrong thing, but we're all believers. By the way, he said his family never intermarried. They only married Jews. But you had Trotsky, you had Kamenev, you had Zinoviev. You had the leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution were Jewish. And that was the association of, as I explained before, Bolshevism with the Jewish people, which had dire consequences, both inside and outside Russia, and which continues until today. The romance of the Jews with the left. Now, the left has left us. They don't like us anymore. But the Jews still like the left. So it's unrequited love, which is hard to deal with. This war uh, destroyed Europe. Until today, the effects in Europe, in England and France, they call it the Great War. World War II, even though it was longer and more costly in terms of lives and everything. But the Great War is World War I. And out of it came two interesting things for the Jews. The Talmud says that the punishment of a liar is that eventually he believes his own lies. The punishment of the anti-Semite is eventually they believe their lies. So in Germany, for instance, and in England, there were premier leaders in the government who believed that the Jews somehow controlled the world. 
there's a committee of Jews that meets between Mincha and Myrith, and they decide what's going to happen. Now, because of the fact that Wall Street was predominantly Jewish, and the Wall Street bankers financed both sides of the war, so they made money no matter what happened. So uh, in their mind, you know, the Jews. So in early 1917, with the war stalemated, Germany got the idea that the Zionist movement had remained completely neutral in the war. Because there were Jews on every side. But the Germans got the idea that if they promised the Jews that they would give them Palestine, then the committee would decide to back the Germans. You can't make this up. England found out about it, so they preempted it. And uh, Chaim Weizmann, the head of the Zionist movement, was in uh, England, and he was a chemist. He had helped England develop a fuse for its shells, and he had influence, he knew people. In any event, eventually, the British Foreign Office wrote a letter to Lord Rothschild, who was the head of the Jewish Board of Deputies, and they said uh, His Majesty's government view would favor the establishment of a national Jewish homeland in Palestine. That's the famous Balfour Declaration. Rav Cook said that the whole war and all of the millions of casualties was only through heaven's way of leading to this. Because the Balfour Declaration gave legitimacy to the Zionist movement and to, in international uh, circles, to the Jews having uh, proprietorship in the land of Israel. Now, you have to remember, in 1900, there were 6,000 Jews here. In 1920, there were 60,000. In 1948, there were 600,000. In 2014, there were 6,300,000. So if you just think of that, you know, something's going on. After the war, the, uh, America eventually entered the war against Germany, and that tipped the scales against Germany. But the German army never surrendered. There was an armistice. The German army, Germany itself was never invaded. And the German army retired, intact almost, back to Germany. But uh, the Allies imposed a very harsh peace treaty called the Versailles Treaty, in which they made Germany uh, pay uh, enormous amounts of money as reparations. They took away territory from Germany. Uh, They intended somehow to punish Germany for the war. And they created what was called the League of Nations. The League of Nations is the forerunner of the UN. It was supposed to settle all, because the people's the war was so terrible. They called it the war to end all wars. Nobody's ever going to go to war again. And look what happened there. 
Europe is destroyed. And the League of Nations confirmed the Balfour Declaration. And it gave mandates to the major powers. The mandate meant that you would run this little country until the population was able to run it by themselves. And the mandate for Palestine was given to England, and it was given on the condition that they would hold it for the Jews. And naturally the Arabs didn't agree. But they gave the Arabs, they gave them Saudi Arabia, they gave them Iraq, they gave them Syria, they gave them Lebanon. All of these were carved out of the Ottoman Empire. They never were countries. And that's part of the joy that we see today in the Middle East, is that, you know, you can draw them on, on, the, uh, on the map with a pencil, but that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything. you got Kurds and Shiites and Sunnis and Alawites, all sorts of people who, again, for thousands of years have not liked each other. But we want to solve it in ten minutes. We know the solution, which is always the weakness of the West. It's the weakness of the left, and it's the weakness of the Jews. You know, there are vast uh, topics that are discussed in the Talmud, and after a long discussion, the Talmud will say, Kasha... We didn't answer the question. And then it keeps on going. So what do you mean you didn't answer the question? But in that lies a great deal of wisdom, right? In Yiddish they used to say, Nobody ever died because of a question. Meaning, you got to live with problems. Not every problem has an immediate solution. And uh, this is all going to lead the Communist Revolution, the Versailles Treaty, the Balfour Declaration, the fact that Germany was defeated but felt that it was betrayed, this is all going to lead to uh, the unbelievable and unpredictable rise of Hitler and Nazism in the 1920s and 1930s, which will eventually lead to World War II, and to the genocide of the Jewish people in Europe. So that's what the next lecture will be about. And uh, I thank you for your attention, and I wish you a very happy Purim. There is Rabbi uh, Beryl Wine, the uh, European Europe Self-Destruction Part 1 here at JMNAM, five minutes before 8 o'clock. We're going to start the um, next lecture with Rabbi Beryl Wine, uh, Europe Self-Destruction part two and um we'll have a chance to break uh, as we'll uh, welcome a special guest um uh, to our program in the next couple of minutes and we'll get to our community calendar and a whole bunch of things that are going on for um tish above five seven 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 all right barrel wines lectures 1-800-499-wein 1-800-499-wein or rabbiwine.com rabbi w-e-i-n Dot com. I remind you, we are here Monday, Erev Tishabov. We are here Tuesday on Tishabov with our Kinnis live service between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. We are here uh, Wednesday with Matis Weingast with the 10th of Av stories of Rabshlomo Kalbach, which is our tradition on the 10th of Av. 
and then Thursday from Yom NCSY in Israel, and Friday from the Michlelet NCSY summer program in Israel um, to round out Shabbos Nachamu week. That is what's happening in the upcoming week. Get ready for great programming from the Holy Land. Rabbi Beryl Wine. Part two of Europe's self-destruction. You're listening to JM in the AM. The decade before the Second World War uh, found uh, the Jews inextricably bound up in the events and it would have tragic results, as we all know. Now, in Eastern Europe, where the Soviet Union, communist Soviet Union, dominated, Stalin in the 1930s consolidated his power and he did it by uh, terrorist methods. Uh, There was the great famine in which he uh, starved uh, five, six million people in the Ukraine to death to force them into collective farms because ideologically Marx said that that was going to work and never did. The only successful collective farms in the history of the world were the kibbutzim here in Israel. And they were driven by ideology, but they were also driven by the fact that they felt that they were building uh, the land of Israel. And that's a phenomenon that did not carry through till our time, because the kibbutzim basically have become uh, no longer... Uh, the communist uh, origin that they once were, but they are in all sorts of different uh, modes of socialism, capitalism, and social change. But in the Soviet Union, that didn't occur. Now, Stalin's main competitors for power were Jews. Uh, Trotsky who was his main competitor in the 1920s after Lenin died, and then uh, Kamenev and Zinoviev, who uh, supported Stalin against Trotsky. Trotsky himself said in a rare uh, admission, he said he was too Jewish to run the Soviet Union. And uh, most of the Politburo agreed with him. Stalin would eventually kill them all. Trotsky would be assassinated in Mexico. Uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev would have show trials in the 1930s. There were enormous show trials in Russia, in which they confessed to all sorts of uh, wild, unbelievable uh, crimes and many of them, they were all tortured, but many of them confessed in order to try and save their families, which uh, Stalin promised he would, and naturally he didn't. But the identification of Bolshevism with Jews was indelible in Europe. And because of that, therefore, uh, so to speak, any uh, leadership that was anti communist, uh, eventually turned out to be anti-Jewish as well, in whatever form that took. For instance, when there was a question of admitting refugees into Europe, Jewish refugees into European countries before the war, 
and even after the war, uh, the objection was raised that uh, they were infiltrated by communist agents and therefore they were uh, not trustworthy to be allowed to enter the non-communist government's uh, countries. And there is no, uh, I don't know of any measure that can be attributed to the damage done to the Jewish people by the left. And it continues until today, where the left is the most anti-Israel of all of the political groupings in the world. And uh, it uh, reflects itself in many, many different ways. But one of the ways in the 1930s was the identification of the Jews with Bolshevism, with the communist revolution. And uh, that set up a... uh, a hatred uh, that permeated Europe. In uh, 1936, Stalin uh, changed his policy, and he said that the communists should cooperate with the socialists. In other words, that the left should be united, because until then the communists uh, opposed the socialists uh, even more vehemently than they did the capitalists. And therefore, there was created what was called the United Front for the elections, especially in France. Uh, the head of the Socialist Party in France was a Jew by the name of Leon Blum. J.M. in the A.M. We'll get back to the conversation, the lecture of Averil Wine about Europe's self-destruction coming up. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures at one 800 499 W-E-I-N and RabbiWine.com. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSingle.com. On the NachumSingle Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. I mentioned earlier, just a few minutes ago, that we are very anxious to get back to our regular programming here at the NachumSingle Network. And we are really kick-starting things uh, very quickly. Thursday next week, right before Shabbos Nachamu, our program from Yom NCSY. Friday morning, our program from the Michalelet Summer Program. It is one of the summer programs of NCSY. And we are looking forward to all of that happening next week. I strongly suggest everybody tune in, but especially if you're one of the thousands of parents that has a child on the uh, summer programs with NCSY, you'll find the uh, radio shows even more interesting. The director of summer programs for NCSY is the one and only David Cutler. He joins us from Israel live via telephone. David Cutler, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good afternoon, Nachum. How are you? A pleasure to speak with you. Another banner summer, to say the least, and we are looking forward to being with you next week. I see you're also anxious to get things started right away. Just hours after Chatzos on Wednesday, Yom NCSY is going to begin. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. We're, we're, this year we're in Park Renana. We're going to be in Renana this year for 2,000 of our closest friends. We're going to be getting together. <laughs> and uh, with Mordechai Shapiro and with tremendous food, it was, uh, of course, with you in the house, we're going to, uh, we're going to party and uh, usher out the, uh, the Tisha Bob season and usher in the rest of the summer. Why have you, with all the NCSY summer programs, why has the collective NCSY summer programs 
increased almost 20% over last summer? Well, we have very diverse programming. Uh, really, you know, I, I want to really, I guess, give proper cars. I told our, our parent company, the Orthodox Union, they've made summer programs uh, a, re- a real priority in, in, in all the many things they do for the Jewish community. But summer programs have now become a, a transformative experience that have gone from uh, a, nece- a luxury to a necessity. Your average kid now will go on one quote-unquote expensive summer program uh, in their in their lifetime of, of high school, their high school career. And uh, so it's now become really a necessity, a rite of passage almost, which is terrific for my job security, so that's great. <laughs> um, but it's uh, the thing that we really offer is, is diverse programming. We have kids who have never kept the shop Shabbos and come are, and are coming to experience for their first time a, a public school program called the Ann Sampson Jerusalem Journey, where we have 13 buses of public school kids this year uh, in Israel experiencing everything Israel has to offer. Uh, and then we have kids who are sitting and learning in our NTSY Colo program in Beit Meir, and uh, with top-notch sports and the Russia Yeshiva from YU and from Landers and uh, the wonderful Madre Chim and Urbane from every, every single Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. And then we have everything in between. We have leadership programming, we have TLM, we have sports, we have learning. We just we have everything for every kind of teenager that's out there. And uh, Baruch Hashem, you know, we, like you said, we're up almost 20% from last year. We're at 17 programs, 1,450 kids. And uh, things are going great. And a special shout-out to the 130-plus young ladies of the Michlelet program because they're actually going to be hosting us next week in Israel. Correct. They went from 100 girls. They, they, they've just really unbelievable growth. They had 100 girls last year. They have 132 this year on the Reisha campus in Beit Shemesh. We literally had to put in you know extra beds. And really, we expanded both the campuses of our Kolo and Michlelet. We have physically expanded their, their campuses, their base medrash, their dorms. Uh, we have actually been able to, to, to accommodate our numbers. We have actually brought us the Doka to, uh, to expand their campus, and so that's pretty cool. I actually am curious, and this is something we'll discuss next week, I'm sure, um, in terms of the percentage in programs like Kolel and Michlelet of those who are from the New York, New Jersey area and those who are from a week hall out of town. I guess there's great representation from both crowds, right? Well, there really is. We, we definitely have our fair share from New York, New Jersey, as you would expect. Uh, but because of our NCSY region chapters across the country, uh, we're well represented in Chicago, in LA, in you know Detroit, Seattle. So we have many, many kids from Canada. We have, we have literally a few hundred kids, a couple hundred kids from Canada. Three buses of our TJJ kids are from Canada, but we have many, many kids from Canada. And just the beauty about our program is, we actually went out last night. Uh, we actually had a see them with some boys on Colel. Uh, the boys, half the boys were from West Hempstead, or from DRS, and from Long Island. The others were from uh, Las Vegas and from California, uh, and it was, uh, it, was, it was just a wonderful, it's a wonderful representation of, of how, it, how diverse we are and how from all, all walks of life and all parts of the country. It's great. David Cutler with us from Israel. We'll be with him in Israel next week. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned it. There's, a, uh, there's such an active uh, um, NCSY. I mean, obviously, in New York and New Jersey, there's plenty of active NCSY chapters, not to minimize their incredible contribution to our community. But in some areas of uh, the U.S. and Canada, uh, they're, they're even more vital to their communities than from a, from where we come from. And uh, because they are so active, obviously you're going to have a lot of kids who are attracted to their summer program. So kudos to everybody in all the different cities in North America who are doing great work. Uh, you you So we're going to see a whole bunch of programs, obviously, in Israel. We'll speak with representatives both Wednesday and Thursday, which for our listeners will be Thursday and Friday from all different programs. But you've also done NCSY summer programs for this summer, again, outside of Israel. Am I right? 
Correct. So we have we have our program is uh, our program Camp Sports, which is in Baltimore, which is 80 young men in Baltimore on the Nary Shore campus, uh, kind of like Colel in Israel, but really on the Nary Shore campus of playing ball, uh, sports, you know, going out in the Baltimore Jewish community, going to Hershey Park, just a wonderful four week. We call it a four week guys night out, uh, you know, in, in Baltimore. Then we have our Give West program for girls in, in, on the West Coast, which goes up and down the West Coast doing chesed, you know, working with orphanages and uh, the elderly and disabled, and it's a, a wonderful program there on the West Coast. Then we have our Camp Maor program, uh, which really is incredible, uh, which, which really is a performing arts program you know, for young ladies who are able to sing and able to dance, and they, they do a, a real Broadway performance uh, on the last day of the program. They have off-Broadway you know, uh, professionals who are coming and teaching and working with them. It's a uh, it's a fantastic program that's growing very nicely. So you're keeping a lot of bus drivers busy, both in the U.S. and Israel, huh? We are. We're, we're, we're using all kinds of transportation. We're using we're using all kinds of planes, and we're we're even we even expanded this year to uh, to New Zealand and Australia and Hawaii with, uh, as we partner with the Confe program. Uh, so we're, we're we're really all over the globe. And uh, it's really it's, uh, it's a lot to keep track of, but it's it's, it's fantastic. Thank God. On Wednesday night for Thursday morning's program, we'll be at Park Ranana with Yom NCSY. There will, in fact, be over 2,000 people there, and thousands of parents can tune in on Thursday morning to hear our report. In addition to seeing the entire event, you're going to be uh, you're going to be live streaming. Oh no, excuse me, I'm confusing it. You're live streaming the uh, Kotel event on Tisha B'Av itself, right? Correct. Um, uh, and and Yom NCSY will also be live streaming both of them. They're both both live, and uh, parents should really tune in and join us for to end, to end Tisha B'Av in the most meaningful way possible. It starts at 6.45 here in Israel, 11.45 in, uh, in, in the States, in, in New York. And, uh, and then the next night also, the whole thing is live streaming as well. All right, and, any, and anybody who's part of the NCSY summer programs are going to get an email about that, right? So you can just literally click through and then participate. Yes, they, are, they, they, are, they already have, and anybody else who's interested really can always contact us at summer at ncsy.org, S-U-M-M-E-R at ncsy.org. And uh, the information is on our website. Mordechai Shapiro is the musical guest Wednesday night, and uh, there's a there's a great suspicion that David Cutler is going to make public the information that he already knows about what programs NCSY is going to be adding to their roster next year. You'd think 17 programs is enough. David Cutler says it is not. There will be an announcement on Wednesday night, right? An announcement and a video that will un- that unveil the God willing. Uh, I will release that it's four programs we're going to be adding next year. I'll, I'll tell you that special for, for your listeners today, but to find out what they are and and, and really uh, the special, they're really very cool. A couple of them are they're really very different and very interesting. Uh, similar to this year, we, we unveiled really one very special program, an internship program here in Jerusalem where 31, 31 public school and high school kids are doing internships here in the Jerusalem area in high-tech and not-for-profit in Hadassah Hospital. Uh, so we have similar, you know, plans for next year to unveil uh, really a couple of very niche-oriented, very cool programs uh, for teens of all, of all walks of life, and uh, it's going to be very exciting. And I remember for years we were on the sidelines rooting for you guys to get to a thousand participants in your summer program. It looks like we have to rev things up now toward two thousand. God willing, that's the plan. The, the, the number, the, the number is two thousand, and God willing, by around two thousand twenty. We call it our 2020 vision. Uh, <laughs> our, our goal is to be at about 2,000 kids, God willing, it's, uh, as long as everything goes smoothly and, and should go well. He is the director of summer programs for NCSY. He uh, hosts us next week, and you'll be hearing the broadcast Thursday and Friday at JM and the AM. He is David Cutler. David, an easy fast to you and continued success with the programs, and we look forward to seeing you in Israel next week, please, God. 
Thank you for having me. We're excited to host you here in, in the Holy Land next week, and uh, we're really looking forward to it. We're very excited. Thank I you. I greatly so appreciate that. Kolaka vote and best regards to everyone in Aretz. Thursday morning broadcast as we get ready. Yes, a week from today, it'll be Yeoman CSY on the air at this time. A week from tomorrow, it'll be uh, our show from Michalelet, which, which is going to include a whole bunch of different programs that we're going to be speaking about. Plus, we'll meet some of the kids, which is always fun. We'll meet some of the kids, some of the youngsters, some of the young men and women. Who are part of the uh, who are part of the entire NCSY summer program, which will be nice. Uh, reminder: the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation presents Emuna for Life. It's this year's Tisha B'av program with Rabbi Kamenetsky, Rabbi Biederman, Rabbi Dunner, Rabbi Shapiro, Rabbi Mansour, Rabbi Wallerstein, Rabbi Asher. It's all happening this Tisha B'Av. Go to powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org, power of speech, excuse me, powerofspeech.org and choose the site where you'd like to see Amuna for Life, the Tisha B'Av program by the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, powerofspeech.org. The missing link is the name of the Project Inspire program that Charlie Harari is going to be presiding over. With many special guests, what is the missing link to bringing the Geula? 6.30 p.m. on Tisha B'Av. Spend the last two hours of the fast with Charlie Harari and an amazing roster of great rabbis. Uh, they're asking everybody to email an audio recording or email um, in general. What is the missing link to bringing the Geula? Share your thoughts by email. Radio at projectinspire.com. Radio at projectinspire.com. Tisha B'Av service at the Isaiah Wall. Kotel Yeshayahu, happening this coming uh, Tuesday, men and women invited. Mincha service at the Isaiah Wall is this coming Tuesday, starting at 2 p.m. Bring your talis and tefillin and uh, get ready for Mincha. It's a perfect opportunity during lunch hour on Tisha B'Av if you're working in Manhattan to come and daven Mincha with everybody. It's very, very inspiring. And during this time, this, during this time of BDS, during this time of anti-Semitic attacks, during this time of terror attacks in Israel, it is the time to show solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world. 2 p.m., Tollison's Villain, Tuesday, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York. Don't forget, today is the bake sale to support the Lone Soldier Center at Breezy's 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Breezy's 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Today's the bake sale. Today from 10 to 8, tomorrow from 10 to 1 to support the Lone Soldier Center. Rabbi Beryl Wine. He is um, speaking about the the he's speaking about Europe's self destruction. Europe's self destruction. We continue with this lecture here at JM in the AM, and uh, it uh, reflects itself in many many different ways. But one of the ways in the 1930s was the identification of the Jews with Bolshevism, with the communist revolution. And uh, that set up a, uh, a hatred uh, that permeated Europe. In uh, 1936, Stalin uh, changed his policy, and he said that the communists should cooperate with the socialists. In other words, that the left should be united, because until then the communists... Uh, opposed the socialists uh, even more vehemently than they did the capitalists. And therefore, there was created what was called the United Front. 
for the elections, especially in France. Uh, the head of the Socialist Party in France was a Jew by the name of Leon Blum. Uh, the slogan of the right uh, in the election against the left was better Hitler than Bloom. And uh, they got what they wanted. Bloom served as prime minister for a short period of time, but the government fell apart. The communists again dumped the socialists. The United Front uh, did not maintain uh, a long life, a long political life. Bloom later was interred in a Kanazi concentration camp. The French themselves were... You know, if, if part of the problem with Europe is that it does not face itself. It doesn't look in the mirror. So Austria says they were a victim. Even though they were not a victim, they were the perpetrators. France, to a great extent, it's a victim. But it's not a victim. They collaborated with the Nazis. They were the ones that destroyed the Jews in France. And it's true across the board. So everybody was a victim. And even the German people are victims. What could they do? They're a victim of the Nazis and Hitler, as though the Nazis and Hitler had nothing to do with Germany. And uh, because of that uh, ability uh, to avoid, not just responsibility, but to avoid the truth, uh, because of it, it's, it's ironic that the only country in Europe that really uh, began to face up to what happened was Germany. So you have uh, this problem of uh, the fact that uh, the Jews somehow are identified with the left, even though most Jews were not leftists. Then you had a second problem. The Great War, which I discussed so brilliantly last Saturday night, (laughs) the Great War left Europe in shambles. Tens of millions dead, economies ruined, uh, empires shattered and disappeared, and uh, somebody had to be blamed for this. How did this happen? So uh, in Germany, for instance, uh, the Germans believed that uh, they could have won the war, and they certainly believed that the war was not their fault. And they believed that the Versailles Treaty, which punished Germany, was an evil thing. And uh, they looked for scapegoats. Now, in Germany, there were two large parties that arose in the late 20s and the early 30s. One was Hitler's party, the Nazi party, and the second was the Communist Party. Both looked for a scapegoat. And the irony was that the scapegoat became the Jews. Somehow the Jews were responsible for what happened. If you were on Hitler's side, the Jews were the Bolsheviks. If you were on the communist side, the Jews were the capitalists. The Jews were the ones that made money. Wall Street, uh, America, etc. And uh, whoever won between those parties, it was going to be bad for the Jews. How bad no one ever imagined. 
that the Jews in Germany were German citizens. They had fought in the German army. Uh, Jews rose to political prominence in the Weimar Republic. The Jews were professors. They were the musicians in the uh, Berlin Philharmonic. They, they, they were uh, authors. They were Nobel Prize winners. The Jews in Germany had, uh, had achieved uh, had achieved the dream that reform dreamt of in the early 1800s. Completely assimilated. 95% of German Jewry was assimilated. You know, you talk about uh, Hirsch and uh, you know, Frankfurt. The it's, uh, they were minuscule communities compared to uh, the larger Jewish community that was in Germany. And now, all of a sudden, they became the focus of everyone's attention. Even though you're talking about perhaps 500,000 people in a country of uh, 60 million. So it makes no sense. But history never makes sense. We try to make sense of history, but history never makes sense. And therefore, they were natural scapegoat. So that's Eastern Europe and that's Germany. France, which suffered the most in terms of the uh, Allies, uh, was uh, simply exhausted. Even though it retained an empire, but it was morally, financially, politically exhausted. It had no stomach to take on anything else anymore. And uh, France had, uh, and still has, long anti-Semitic past. And a lot of non-French Jews immigrated to France, Eastern European Jews. And in French society, even till today, the stranger is never easily accepted. And because of that, therefore, uh, it would be relatively easy uh, under the right circumstances uh, to make the Jews the scapegoat and to make France the victim. And uh, the Jews had a particularly difficult arrangement with the British because the British controlled Palestine. Now, originally, uh, as uh, was discussed before, the British had issued the Balfour Declaration. They had the mandate from the League of Nations over Palestine. And originally, Palestine included Transjordan, the country of Jordan today, which is twice as large. The, the other side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, is twice as large as the west side. When in, in 1922... In 1921, there were Arab riots already, and uh, Lord Herbert Samuel uh, appointed the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. He tried to mollify the Arabs. England traditionally ruled all of its colonies by uh, putting the different political and social and societal sections against each other so that England ruled because they could never get put to the, you never had a united uh, 
front against England in the colonies. That's what happened in India and throughout the British Empire. Now, in Palestine, beginning in 1921, 1922, the Arabs rioted. You know, what we call uh, intifada or terrorism, etc., that's it's been going on for a uh, hundred years. It's not something uh, that is easily dealt with. The British did not want to commit an enormous amount of troops to put down the riots. Don't forget England is a small country and its army was also a relatively small army. It wasn't until uh, the, almost the Second World War that they had to begin conscription again to make a larger army. And because of that, therefore, uh, they felt that uh, the solution to the problem was to appease the Arabs. And the appeasement uh, came forth in three different ways. One, they broke off the eastern part of Palestine from the western part so that they created this artificial country which today is called Jordan and they installed as its uh, rulers uh, the Hashemite prince Abdullah who originally came from Saudi Arabia and now the, uh, in Arabia the Saudis drove out the Hashemites so England had to take care of the Hashemites so they gave them Jordan and they gave them Iraq both were ruled by so you have today for instance that the uh, Jordanian uh, ruling family represents about 5% of the Jordanian population they are not indigenous to Jordan so we broke that off uh, the Jews uh, swallowed that uh, without much objection there wasn't much they could do but uh, Churchill famously said, well, the eastern part is for the Arabs. This is how we're going to uh, fulfill the uh, Balfour Declaration. The eastern part will be for the Arabs. The western part will be for the Jews. So we have the beginning of partition. And every solution to the Jews from that day forward is always partition whatever you call it, two-state solution, whatever name you will give it, then the basic idea is partition. And since this is such a large country, there's so much land to be divided. So a partition always uh, provides a solution. So partition uh, went through the, uh, the United Nations, it went through land for peace, two-state solution. It's, a, it's all different names for the same idea, to divide the land. But uh, apparently uh, the issue is not land, because if the issue were land, it long, long ago had been settled. The issue is far deeper on both sides. And it's also tied up with religion. And when religion and politics mix, you always have a volatile situation. So uh, in the 1920s, uh, England was faced with continual rioting by the Arabs. 
So a second step was taken, and that was uh, to uh, make it harder for Jews to come to the land of Israel. And that was done by uh, saying that you have to come in, you have to get a certificate. Who was in charge of the certificates? Uh, so they said the Zionist movement is in charge of the, Zion- of the certificates. Now the Zionist movement then in Palestine, there were two Zionist movements. It was the Zionist movement outside of Palestine, which was the general Zionists, and to a great extent the religious Zionists participated in that Zionist movement. And there was a Zionist movement here in Israel, which was led by Ben-Gurion and Ben-Svi and others, that was left. That was not, that was socialist and uh, had a uh, communist attachment to it. And the certificates were not given to the Zionist movement outside the land of Israel. Naturally, they were given to the certificates, were given to the Zionist movement within the land of Israel. And as Weizmann famously put it, he said, we want a certain type of Jew to come here. The certain type of Jew was not going to be, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, a yeshiva student or a uh, Hasidic rabbi. That's not what they were looking for. They were looking for young people with socialist ideals who would physically uh, work to build the country. So their control of the certificates was a key uh, factor in what the population, the Jewish population, would look like before the Second World War. After the Second World War, for uh, with the law of return, etc., all of that disappeared. But uh, the uh, infrastructure had already been created. So, for instance, in 1923... The great Slabotka Yeshiva in Lithuania, Rabbi Nosen Svi Finkel, the altar of Slabotka, he said, Lithuania is done. The Jews are done here. My father told me that uh, Rabbi Shimon Shkop, who was his Rosh Yeshiva in Grodna, told him in 1929, he said that Europe is built. It's not that they didn't know. They knew that Europe was gone. They couldn't do anything about it. How do you change Europe? So uh, he moved the Slabotka Yeshiva to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem. But only half the Yeshiva went. The other half remained in Slabotka and were destroyed. And uh, the the, uh, Jewish community here, especially in Jerusalem, for a change was disunited. Rav Cook was elected as the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, but a section of the Orthodox community refused to accept him. And they elected Rabbi Zonenfeld. And there was a, even though between the Rabbi Cook and Rabbi Zonenfeld there were cordial relationships and even cooperation on matters. But uh, when it came down to the masses, to the people in the street, 
there were open battles and there were terrible things that happened that need not be repeated but you know whatever it is today it's not as bad as it was you have to believe me though it's pretty bad today too you know the uh, rabbi that had to give a eulogy to a person whom he could find nothing good to say about so he got up and he said but he was better than his brother <laughs> so that's the situation we find that with all of our troubles it's better than it was now Rabbi Cook had an idea the chief rabbinate and that idea was supported by the British because the British had a chief rabbi in England and the British always wanted to be able to deal not with the Jews as a whole but with particular Jews who would somehow uh, take care of the rest and therefore they supported the idea of the chief rabbinate and uh, it was established in fact it was established Purim Cotton in 1925 Rav Cook had great ideas for it uh, some of which uh, were fulfilled many of which remain unfulfilled the uh, Ger Hasidim the Rebbe encouraged them to come to Israel that's why Ger is the largest Hasidus and most uh, politically powerful but they, so there was a slow increase in Jewish immigration to the country but the religious immigration was uh, on a much more moderate scale than the let us say the leftist uh, immigration into the country but the question of what to do with the Arabs that never really came to any head in 1926 there were riots in 1929 there were riots in the 1930s in 1936 so it forced England uh, to come up with a uh, another solution and uh, they uh, created a commission that met in 1936 it was headed by a man Lord Peel's Peel and therefore was called the Peel Commission and they came to the brilliant conclusion that the country cannot support more than a population of two and a half million people in other words economically agriculturally uh, the country can and we're talking about all of uh, Palestine the west part can't control more than two and a half can't can't it's not viable I mean, you don't realize, you know, the, the Bureau of Statistics says there, there are eight and a half million people living in Israel. But they said it can't support more than two and a half million people. And because of that, therefore, they said, as a humanitarian gesture, we have to curtail immigration. Now, this 1936 is three years after Hitler comes to power. Now, Hitler came to power in a... Uh, wild series of events the Nazi party uh, never won a majority at the elections but it did win a plurality in 1929 and in 1931 now the, when the Nazis uh, this is a parliamentary government and the Nazis came to the parliament they didn't let anybody else speak they were thugs there were riots in the parliament 
of anything uh, that uh, there were riots on the streets. He had the brown shirts, which was a militia, and it fought, and the communists fought them openly in the streets. If there's anything the Germans can't stand is disorder. <laughs> so Hitler said, I'll bring order. Well, he's going to bring order. So that's, that's what we need. Now Hitler had written out in his book, Mein Kampf, everything that he was going to do, and he followed it to the letter. And no one can say that they didn't know what was coming. The only thing that could be said was that he was such a madman that who could believe that, that he would ever come to power? But we are witness to the fact that all sorts of strange things happen. And uh, the uh, German president, von Hindenburg, who was the general, the hero of World War I, so uh, he appointed originally in 33, a man by the name of Franz von Papen to be the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, von Papen was a, an elegant diplomat, a banker, but he was a man of no principles. And he ruled for about three or four months. And uh, he came up with the brilliant idea that we should take Hitler into the government, into the cabinet, The mistake that everyone made with Hitler was that they said they were going to control him. So, for instance, the German industrialists backed him, the German bankers backed him, because he was going to bring about order, and they would, uh, you know, they would uh, see to it that the excesses did not happen. Hitler comes, is appointed finally chancellor. I mean, von Hindenburg said, that little corporal. But he eventually appointed that little corporal as the chancellor of Germany. And you have pictures of Hitler for the first time in a business suit, not wearing a uniform, not wearing the Nazi band. When he comes to power, uh, just to show you how, uh, you know, I don't know how to, how to put it, it's, uh, but... Uh, the rabbinic organizations of Germany all sent him letters of congratulation. Because they were German. Now, Hitler was in a parliamentary government, in a coalition government, and he wanted to be the dictator. He wanted to be the autocrat, the only one. So how do you do that? So the Nazis... Uh, got hold of a mentally incompetent uh, Dutchman and they used him to burn down the parliament building, the Reichstag, the famous Reichstag fire. And under the laws of Germany, it's a little like uh, 9-11, right? Under the laws of Germany, uh, there were certain emergency powers that the government could take in the event of such a national threat. And Hitler invoked uh, martial law for 90 days. Uh, But uh, the martial law lasted 12 years until his death. J.M. in the A.M. on this um, Thursday morning in our nine days format. We'll continue with Ribera Wine here at J.M. in the A.M. But um, I got a really nice surprise on our telephone.
uh, somebody who um, we always get an opportunity to spend time with when we visit the holy city of Hebron. Yifat Al-Kobi, who um, this week was in Beit HaMach and we will explain what that's all about in just a moment. Yifat Al-Kobi, one of the most uh, amazing heroes, or I should say heroines of uh, our people, living in the city of Hebron, is with us live via telephone. Yivat, shalom, shalom, welcome to JM in the AM. Shalom, from the city of Hebron, from Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov, shalom. All right, tell us what's going on. I know that um, I know that there is a building, Beit HaMach Pela, which has been, uh, which has been uh, fought over or has been in the courts in terms of a legal battle. Explain what's been happening over the last couple of days. Okay, so if, if I can, I will go even a, a couple of years ago when this building, which is just opposite Kev of Machpelah, and whoever visited knows the big parking lot outside Kev of Machpelah. So this building of Beta Machpelah is just outside the uh, opposite Kev of Machpelah, and it was bought uh, a couple of years ago from an Arab. Uh, we went uh, living in this uh, house five and a half years ago, but after a week, the Israeli government uh, took us out. Uh, from that day, we are waiting for a permission to enter this house. How can it be that Jews bought this uh, building and they are not uh, allowed uh, to uh, live in it? I will just say that I believe that each one of us that uh, bought or will buy a house somewhere in the world or in Israel, in the minute that he pays the money and you know the, the documents are signed and everything, he gets the keys and he can go into the house. But this is not what's going on to Hebron. I'm saying, saying it really sadly. Uh, we're going through, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't have it's not bad. It's adult, all kinds of committees that the uh, that, um, government sends us and the uh, Ministry of Defense from one to the other, one to the other. And uh, two days ago, we decided that uh, it can not continue anymore like that. Uh, it cannot be that uh, Jews will be uh, remaining outside of their houses. Uh, even though they were bought by uh, whole money, just like Abraham Avinu, and we entered this house that we bought. Uh, I'm now uh, standing in my uh, room over here, just opposite Kev Machpelah. I see it from the window. So you're still, uh, you're still in, you're still in Beit Machpelah. Yeah, yeah, we're still, we're already almost uh, two days uh, standing here, uh, about 15 families and like 150 people. Um, just starting living. Uh, meanwhile, it's kind of a communal, you know, one kitchen for everyone, uh, only two bathrooms and so on. But uh, I can tell you that the uh, atmosphere and the feeling uh, of the adults and especially of the children is really uh, it's something special. And I, I believe you can hear it in my voice. Uh, you know, it's like a, a feeling um, that you are touching a history in your uh, hands. If, and, you know, so many times, I just will say one thing, that so many times we tell our children we have stories about the pioneers that came and built Eretz Israel and settled, a, and this is how this country started, and suddenly we get the opportunity with our children to do exactly the same, and this is really a very big privilege. Yifat Al-Kobi from Hebron. Um, I assume that there are two resolutions possible to this. Either the court will allow everybody to stay or the army will tell everybody to leave. Am I right that those are the two things that would happen? That one of those two um, things? More or less, uh, they want us 
to uh, go through a kind of a, like a um, signing in the table, something like this. I don't know how it works in America, but kind of signing on the table in order to uh, enter this house. And uh, we say that uh, this kind of signing in everywhere in Eretz Israel can be after a man already, he just has to pay the money and sign the documents and he can leave. Why in Hezron, why are they preventing us uh, this, uh, you know, so basic uh, privilege? And this is what we are trying to say uh, also to the government, especially to the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and to the Minister of Defense, uh, Avigdor Lieberman, that uh, it cannot be um, connected one to each other. If we, but, you know, Hezron is like Tel Aviv, it's like Yerushalayim. You pay the money, you can come and settle inside. All the signs, all the documents, whatever you want, like in every other house in the country, we will do after we're sitting in this building. Now we are planning, it's a Thursday afternoon over here. We're getting starting to get you ready for Shabbat, you know, cooking for everyone, and many people want to come and stay and make this Shabbat in Beta Machtela. And we hope, as Hashem, that the Kadosh Bofu will give a, a good Eitzah, a Eitzah from here, from the city of Hezbon. And uh, we all know a couple of weeks ago we read in the Parashat Shavu about Kalev ben Yifune, that there was the only one from the old Shnei from the 12 Meraglim, the 12 spies, that came to Hezbon to pray, to get powers, to get spirits from this place, uh, that he can stand against all, everyone that is speaking against Eretz Israel. And so we say, we hope and pray that the Prime Minister and that the Minister of Defense get the towers, get the spirits from this place, from Hezbon, and will get the, uh, you know, the uh, strength to stand opposite the whole world, opposite the UNESCO, with all what they were talking about weeks ago, uh, and uh, and let us uh, stay and live normal nature life. Here in, uh, the studio of Nifat, you're amazing. Best regards to everybody. I hope that the Shabbat goes well in Beit HaMachpelah and you have the support and love of many thousands of Jews around the world. I hope you're feeling it. <laughs> of course. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope that uh, maybe next week we'll speak and I'll tell you that we're already living here and uh, everything is normal. That would be wonderful. Yifat Al-Kobi from the holy city of Hebron, she and others, as you heard, in Beit HaMachpelah, a building bought with uh, Jewish money, quote-unquote, by Jews, and therefore um, should be able to be occupied by whoever the owners would like to occupy it, but the Israeli government and courts are are not um, cooperating with that rule of life, <laughs> um, as it's been described to us. And uh, therefore, they are in the uh, home and uh, making a statement across the street, quote-unquote, from Marat right there in the holy city of Hebron. Yifat Al-Kobi, who many of our listeners have seen and heard from during visits to the holy city of Hebron. Thursday morning broadcast, plenty more coming up here at JMN. Let's get to uh, more, as much as we can, of Rabbi uh, Beryl Wine on the uh, second part of the lecture entitled Europe's self-destruction. It's, uh, but uh, the rabbinic organizations of Germany all sent him letters of congratulation. Because they were German. Now, Hitler uh, was in a parliamentary government, in a coalition government, and he wanted to be the dictator. 
he wanted to be the autocrat, the only one. So how do you do that? So the Nazis uh, got hold of a mentally incompetent uh, Dutchman, and they used him to burn down the parliament building, the Reichstag, the famous Reichstag fire. And under the laws of Germany, it's a little like uh, 9-11, right? Under the laws of Germany, uh, there were certain emergency powers that the government could take in the event of such a national threat. And Hitler invoked uh, martial law for 90 days. Uh, but uh, the martial law lasted 12 years until his death. Never was revoked. There never would be another election in Germany. And he got rid of everybody else in the cabinet. He brought in only his Nazi cohorts. And he immediately began his anti-Semitic uh, role, just as he promised that he would. So there were boycotts of Jewish stores. Uh, there were... Uh, <laughs> Universities uh, fired their Jewish professors. Hitler called uh, Einstein and uh, Oppenheimer and the other uh, Jewish scientists who could have given him the atomic bomb. Can you imagine? Imagine Hitler with the atomic bomb. But he called that Jewish science. And Jewish science couldn't be true. And therefore, all of these people fled and they made it American science. And uh, all the Jewish musicians were uh, fired from the Philharmonic. And that's how we got the Israeli Philharmonic. Just like today, the Israeli Philharmonic is the Moscow Philharmonic. <laughs> and it's going to be the French Philharmonic. And, you know, that's the way it goes. And the Lord's sense of humor is exquisite. It's never, never what we think is going to be. And uh, because of that, uh, he has now complete control of the country. And he creates uh, the brown shirts are one group. But he creates another group called the SS, the black shirts, who are loyal to him, not to Germany whose oath of allegiance is to the Fuhrer, not to Germany. And he finds people to run there. There are plenty of sadists running around. And the uh, first thing he did was purge the Nazi party of anybody whom he suspected. Now that's always the method of dictators. He admired Stalin, how Stalin took care of anybody who he distrusted. And he imitated him. So there was uh, the Night of the Long Knives, it was called, in which uh, hundreds of uh, Nazis, uh, Eric Rome, who was the head of the uh, brown shirts of the SA, they were all assassinated. And thousands were sent off to concentration camps. His own German uh, supporters. But that taught Germany a lesson that you don't oppose Hitler. And from that time on, from the 30s, there was absolutely no opposition to Hitler in Germany.
and his slogan was uh, Jews are our misfortune anything that's wrong in Germany is because of the Jews we lost the war because of the Jews the Versailles Treaty was the Jews the reason there was unemployment that was the Jews the reason that the, uh, we had inflation was that everything was the Jews and the German people believed him his original plan was that he was going to make Germany Judenrein. He's going to get rid of the Jews. He didn't say he's going to kill them all. He's going to make them Judenrein. He's going to send it away. The only problem was that you had to have somewhere to go. Most of the world was unwilling to accept Jewish refugees. The, the United States had a very severe quota which did not allow uh, the British under the Peel Commission at the time when the Jews most needed a place to run to, uh, restricted immigration to uh, 15,000 a year. But Jews ran away, but most of them didn't run away far enough. They ran away to France and to Belgium and to Holland. Those that came to England had some safety. Switzerland wouldn't allow anybody in. Now, even though Mussolini was his ally and was part of the Axis, uh, the anti-Jewish decrees which existed in Italy were not really enforced until the Nazis took over in 1944. We have many instances in Italy of the local population saving its Jewish population such as what happened in Rome. So uh, the Jews aren't going, or not enough of them are going. And uh, to leave, you had to, uh, the Nazis took everything away, nobody left with anything. There was a conference in a place called San Remo uh, in the late 1930s uh, regarding the refugee problem in which there were like over 60 countries participated, but nobody agreed to take anybody. Now, Europe today suffers from that conscience. And that's why, for instance, Angela Merkel of Germany is the leader in Europe of accepting refugees, accepting Muslim refugees from Syria. But the rest of Europe is, as we can see, backtracking and she just suffered a major electoral defeat because the people don't want it. So there's nowhere to go. But Hitler wanted to force them to go. So in 1938, in November, he organized a uh, nationwide pogrom called Kristallnacht, in which uh, 140 or more synagogues all over Germany were burned to the ground, uh, Jewish businesses were shattered, uh, Jewish homes and apartments were looted, uh, tens of thousands of Jews were rounded up and sent to concentration camps, and that shocked the world. But uh, didn't uh, nothing happened. And in the meantime, Hitler has keeping up the pressure. Uh, so the first thing he did in 1936 is he forced the French to leave the Rhineland. The Rhineland was the uh, 
part of Germany that was occupied by France after World War I. Uh, it had a major industry there, armament industry. Uh, Germany, under the Treaty of Versailles, was limited to what kind of weapons it could have and how big an army it could JM have. J.M. in the A.M. with our barrel wine. The um, uh, lecture is entitled Europe's Self-Destruction. We're going to have to conclude it tomorrow morning early on here at J.M. the A.M. It's a Thursday on this 27th of July and 4th of Av. As we get closer and closer to Tisha B'Av, you know our schedule for next week. Uh, Tuesday we are here. Kinnis service live with our Goldwasser between 7.30 and 8. Uh, if you cannot make it to Shul, Make it to Arkinis on uh, Tuesday morning. Wednesday, Matis hosts the uh, stories of Rav Shlomo Kalbach, 10th, excuse me, 10th of Av program. Thursday, we're from Yom NCSY, and Friday, we're from Michlelet uh, in Beit Shemesh, Israel, uh, with our friends at the NCSY summer program. So we're right back into our great programming as we travel on Tishabov to go to Israel and a broadcast from, from uh, some very special broadcasts with our friends at NCSY next week. And we are very much looking forward to it. Uh, don't forget, we have uh, many, many things going on, including uh, Charlie Harari leading the uh, Tisha B'Av uh, End of Fast program for us, starting at 6.30 Eastern Time with Project Inspire. That happens on Tuesday, starting at 6.30 Eastern Time. Chavitz Chaim Heritage Foundation has hundreds of the sites that are showing this year's presentation of the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation Tisha B'Av program. You can go to powerofspeech.org to see where it's showing in your area, powerofspeech.org, for any information whatsoever. Lots going on and uh, plenty more to speak about tomorrow morning. Of course, tomorrow, our weekly update, Malcolm Honline scheduled to join us in the 7 o'clock hour, 7.40 Eastern time tomorrow morning right here at JM in the AM. Achin of Israel and Achin Achem are brothers and sisters in Israel. We are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com on the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that closes out another amazing nine days program at JM in the AM. Tomorrow we're back. We'll start at 6 a.m. Michael Fragan is new at 9.30 this morning. Spin class with Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfeder will be a new broadcast all about the latest in the world of politics coming up one half hour from now after Charlie Harari and the encore presentation of Unlocking Greatness. It's all happening right here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, there will be no live lunch today during the nine days, but we'll return, of course, uh, uh, next week after Tisha B'Av. Have a great Thursday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.